This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Big win Carlson, for the Ottawa Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Keeping Girls and Fancy Hockey Podcast, the best Fancy Hockey Podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who at one point owned Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrowski, and with me is my esteemed co-host, your friend and mine, Brian Calm. Hello, Elon. Hello, everyone. I, I'm a little at a loss of how to follow that up. What a great day it's been for Sens fans. What a great series it's been for Carlson fans. And what a great Carlson it's been for hockey fans all over the world who have finally had the chance to recognize just how amazing Eric Carlson is on a nightly basis. He revealed today, Elon, usually they do this just once they're eliminated, but for some reason he moved on and he's feeling good about it. He's playing with like two hairline fractures in his foot, like a broken foot is what he's playing and dominating on. No big deal. Whatever. But okay, yeah, as you can see, I'm donning my Carlson hat here. Very excited. Also very excited to podcast, Brian. We took a week off. I've got so much energy. We have so much to talk about. I actually have also some things I want to clarify before we move on. But before I get into (laughs) everything, why don't we mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com. It's the best fantasy hockey website out there, even when the fantasy season's over. I know you all have your playoff pools, but probably you're not able to make ad drops. You might think, why go to DauberHockey.com? What's the point anymore? Well, they've got daily ramblings, giving you updates on the playoffs and also, you know, good tidbits for next year in your draft. Like what are players doing now that you might want to take note of for when you're drafting next year? We're actually going to get into a lot of that in this episode. Also, I actually use their line combos. They're still updating the line combinations, even during the playoffs, which I really appreciate. Just a great site overall, dauberhockey.com. What a great site. You can get your hockey fix there, your fantasy hockey fix there all summer long, just like you can get it with us every couple weeks, which is great. And Elon, just before we go any further, I want to point out, I am podcasting injured today. I scraped my knuckle on a wall earlier today. It bled for a little bit, but I'm okay and I'm fighting through it. Okay, you sure? We we could postpone this if you need. No, I think I think I think I'm okay. Okay. Also, if anyone wants to see, I have a little bit of a uh, scratch on my thumb here. I was cooking today, so yeah. But Brian and I are troopers, just like Eric Carlson. We're going to do our best. By the way, Brian, I'm going to do something controversial right now. As people in the chat room can see, I'm wearing my Carlson hat. Oh, by the way, thanks everyone for joining us in the chat room. You can join us every time we do a live show, keepingcarlson.com slash live. You could follow us on Twitter to find out when they're happening, or it's going to be every two weeks. I mean, you know, you'll figure it out. Okay, I got my Carlson hat, but check this out. I got my Toronto Maple Leafs shirt. 
Because I no. want <laughs> No, you can't wear... I, I called you just... You showed me before we went on air and I called you a bandwagoner and you took exception. And before you respond to that, I just want to point out, Elon is wearing like a hat that's like, it's got a red cap with a black brim and the Sens logo is front and centered. Where you'd expect it to say senators above it, it says Carlson, which is really the hat anyone really wants. Like we cheer for team Carlson. If he was traded, well, let's not... Let's not go there. Uh, oh, it's okay. happy now. But let's get back to you wearing the Sens on top and the Leafs on your torso. The Leafs are getting more real estate there. Well, I mean, you know, I love the hat. The hat is what people look at when they look into my eyes. I think that's the more prominent <laughs> piece of clothing. But anyway, I just want to bring it up. You know, it's a discussion. I know it's silly, but I got called out on our Facebook group. Ryan L. was like, Elon, I don't think he's a true hockey fan because he had heard me ranting on the patron cast about how I like both the Leafs and the Sens. And I'm having a lot of fun living in Toronto, cheering for the Leafs. I've been going to some bars, watching games. But you know what? I've also been watching a lot of Sens games. I love hockey and I want both teams to win. Is it so wrong that I want my long time love the Ottawa Senators to make it to the conference finals to play my new city team Toronto wouldn't that be so fun for me why must I be deprived my brother also is telling me like I wrote like after Ottawa won today and I were like yeah Ottawa won he's like shut up you're not allowed to cheer for them go watch the Leafs game tonight it's like come on people why can't we all just have fun I just want to have fun. Well, it just screams like someone who doesn't recognize the, the historical differences between them and you do you live through it I'm sure we probably watched some of those games together, but it's not like you're wearing a t-shirt cheering for like the 2003 Toronto Maple Leafs. This is a new iteration. And I have also come out as somebody who enjoys the Maple Leafs and is cheering the rebuild and the way they're doing it. So it's, it's exciting to watch them. I'm glad Ottawa ended up playing Boston in the first round because with the way Toronto has looked against Washington, I, I fear it wouldn't have ended well against Toronto. In fact, I'm happy that they even get the Rangers second round over the Leafs. Well, we'll see if the Leafs uh, make it. They got to get through tonight. Big game against Washington. Thanks to everyone joining us live because I know Jade is saying it's hard because she's wanting to watch the Capitals and the Leafs. You can do both, right? You have the game on. You listen to the podcast right now. The second period has just started still 0-0. We'll keep you guys posted if anything happens, even though you'll be listening like the next day, most of the people. And they'll be like, yeah, I know. I know who won this game. And you'll hear all of our shock. Brian, let's get in to the podcast. We have a lot we want to talk about today, but whatever. We have all night, but let's get started. I wanted to start by just talking about the playoffs so far. In terms of, like, there, there's been a couple big surprises. Like, Chicago got swept by Nashville. I don't think many people saw that coming. Most people didn't see Nashville winning, let alone getting swept. St. Louis beat Minnesota four games to one. Uh, Columbus lost, which I guess isn't a surprise because they were playing Pittsburgh, though it is kind of a surprise. I still remember back, I think it was in December, when there was that awesome game between Columbus and Minnesota. Actually, the game wasn't that awesome, but the buildup, both were on huge winning streaks, and it was like everyone was all excited to see one team is going to keep the streak going, one streak's going to be broken. These are like two of the best teams in the whole league. Now they're both out with a whimper in the first round in Columbus and Minnesota. So to me, that's been very interesting. And I want to talk about what we've learned in terms of a lot of people, you know, preparing for their playoff pools had to come up with which teams they thought would win in round one, because you have to pick players from the teams that you think will get through. And I'm just wondering if we've learned any lessons so far about how to project this. Like, should we have seen this Chicago loss or this Minnesota loss coming? So the Minnesota one is the one that really shocks me. And we're going to get into like a series by series breakdown later on in the show. So I'm not going to get too deep into it now. But the difference in the Chicago upset and the Minnesota upset was that Chicago legitimately got outplayed by Nashville. Nashville was the better team. They might have been the better team for like the last couple months 
of the season. Chicago had lost four going into the playoffs. Now they've lost eight games in a row. Meanwhile, you have Minnesota who outplayed St. Louis in virtually every way, yet could not solve Jake Allen. There was a goaltender who stood in the way. I don't think Pecorine, Pecorine put up great numbers in the series and surely made some fantastic saves at key moments, but he did not have to carry the load that Jake Allen did for the Blues. And so I don't know if that like mitigates the level of surprise I felt. It's like, well, yeah, Minnesota still dominated. That's what I expected. It is weird and unfortunate for Minnesota that St. Louis stole the show. But um, yeah, so I think uh, I'm less surprised by the Chicago result. Remember, Elon, I'll, I'll put it back out there. Going into the playoffs, I said if there's one team that I had to bet on going out in the first round, I said that St. Louis would be amongst my top choices, if not my top choice for that title. So anything can happen in the playoffs, the NHL playoffs. That's what they want us to be saying. We played right into their hands, but it's true. Well, there you go. So, but I think it's interesting to look because we also had a lot of patrons, Ian in particular, posting a lot of like different models and things, trying to predict who was going to go far in the playoffs, you know, using statistics like, war which is like wins above replacement or like Corsi four percentage so just like the number of shots the team takes versus the other team like all throughout the season and i just wonder like is it even worth it like is it worth it for people to be obviously you want to have like blogs to write and like podcasts to do but if you're trying to predict the series i wonder if you should just kind of go with your gut go with like oh this team i like this team's matchup against the other team like i just wonder if it's worth it to look at Corsi four percentage for example over something more basic like maybe the season series like how the teams did against each other during the season or who was the best over the last like 20 games, you know, as opposed to how teams were over the season or, you know, just, I just wonder, because especially when you take a look at these results, Montreal versus New York, two of the games went to overtime, Ottawa versus Boston, four of the games went to overtime, including today, Uh, Toronto versus Washington, four of the games have gone to overtime, San Jose uh, and Edmonton, they had OT, like Minnesota and St. Louis had a couple of OT games. It's just like when I see so many games going to overtime, it just makes me think either of these teams clearly could have won. Like the whole series can shift. Ottawa, Boston, or Toronto, Washington, both of those series could have gone in the complete other direction. Toronto, Washington, like Toronto could have won the series if they had a couple overtime bounces. So I don't know, it just makes me think, is it even worth trying to project these things and putting so much effort into these models when really we're just projecting a seven-game series? Like like you say, Brian, a good goalie performance, Jake Allen or any other goalie in the playoffs, these are all professionals. They could get hot for four or five games and steal a series. Yeah, exactly. So you can go and like, you know, when we track how a team is doing possession-wise over the course of the season and look for like things that we can use to predict, Corsi has been a good predictor of quality teams. But as we say during the regular season, like when something's happening and I don't believe in it, I'm like, it's a small sample size. This has happened over four, five, even 15 games. Weird things can happen. So that's what we're seeing in the playoffs. You made a good point, Elon. Do you know 17 out of 41 games played in the first round, including today's Ottawa-Boston game, have been decided in overtime? That's more than 40% of the matchups. And even more have been decided by just a goal. The parity in the league is greater than ever. And the other point I wanted to make was that if you remember last season and maybe seasons before, we were talking about how you know, your Corsi and your possession numbers and and all your numbers, but specifically possession, your shot attempts toward uh, how you do in the last couple months of the season could be assigned if you're ready to compete in the playoffs. And if you look at teams that have advanced, you have Edmonton, Ottawa, and St. Louis were 19th, 20th, and 21st respectively in the league in shot attempts towards percentage 
over the last couple months of the year. Meanwhile, San Jose was eighth, Boston was second, Minnesota was third, and in the game going on tonight, Washington was third, while Toronto was 14th. So some big gaps, and none of them have seemed to matter. And I'm saying that about Washington and Toronto too, because even if Washington wins in six, it's you know by the skin of their teeth in six games nonetheless. Yeah, I think the big thing to remember, and I'm like, you know, a big proponent of these advanced stats, and Corsi has been a great predictor of teams. You know, like we remember Colorado did so well, even though they had a really high Corsi, and then the next year they they fell apart. And it was sort of easier to predict, and like players have done that also. We talk about a player who, let's say, has an unsustainable shooting percentage. But anyway, like the thing that you have to remember, though, is so what is Corsi, right? It's the number of shot attempts your team puts on net versus the number of shot attempts coming against you, which is interesting, and that tells you a lot about dumb dominating play but that completely disregards how good the goalies are playing and I think we'll all agree goaltending is a very big part of hockey in games that are going to go to overtime are going to be two or one goal games a goal is a really big thing and so one more goal or one fewer goal against makes a big difference so you are looking at a stat that doesn't even consider the quality of goaltending of course is not going to tell the whole story and I feel like also like shot quality makes a big difference right like Corsi doesn't take into account you know if the team has like 10 power plays and they're getting like amazing shots where they're able to pass it along the perimeter and get a really good solid shot that's very different so it's like a powerful tool but I think we all just have to take a step back and remember it's not telling the whole story it's it's trying its best to determine which team is controlling play but it's not saying who's the better team because you could have a, ba- a team that's really bad at controlling play but you could have the best goalie in the league isn't that worth something well the Montreal Canadiens know that it usually is not getting into their matchup this time. But what you're doing right now, Elon, like this is a straw man argument that's been brought up over the last, well, really ever since Corsi was starting to enter the general hockey conversation. Everyone's like, well, they can't predict everything. And it's, well, no one ever said it could. There are other factors and there are other things you need to consider. And that is where, you know, the DTM about hearts war numbers coming from and everyone else is trying to come up with their metrics to measure other parts of the game ineffective math at hockeyviz.com that's mika blake mccurdy is having heat maps to get his sense of where shots are coming from relative to the rest of the league so it's a piece of the puzzle it's an important piece of the puzzle it's one that was easily quantified to start with and now we've got to color in the rest of the picture to figure it out it's not just a matter of saying well this team has the better possession numbers so they're going to win Uh, the series or the game no matter what and especially in the playoffs like you're saying this is a time where a goalie need only stand on his head for two three games maybe uh, to steal a series or a superstar just has to go hot or cold or someone has to get injured or come back from injury there's so many things that can happen in a small sample like a playoff series and it's been really fun to watch it all happen in the first round yeah, I definitely didn't mean to build a straw man. I was just sort of like just reminding people what Corsi is. And, you know, I, I definitely agree with you. There's like that. the whole point is we're trying to figure out what stats can help us predict things. But the, at the end of the day, especially like you say, in a small sample size, there's only so much predicting you could do. Otherwise, we'd all be millionaires going to Vegas and betting instead of like struggling to win our hockey pools, hoping to get a really good player in the first round. And so let's get back to some fantasy news now. Uh, We'll talk about some of the coaching changes that have happened recently, and then we'll get back into some of the playoff performances and how we think that affects our perceptions of players in terms of like where they should be drafted next year. But I want to ask you about a couple of the coaching changes that have happened recently. So Gerard Gallant has been hired as the first ever coach of the Vegas Golden Knights. Obviously, it's hard to get into too much fantasy impact here because we don't even know what players are on the Vegas Golden Knights. We're going to have a lot of fun when that gets announced, trying to project how they'll do. But uh, in general, Brian, what can you expect from an 
expansion team. Like, it's just a good opportunity to talk about it. Like, if you had to guess right now, how many points will the Golden Knights leading scorer have next season? Like, are you thinking it's going to be like a 50 point guy? It's going to be really hard for anyone to break 50. Or can you see there being someone who gets like 60, like someone who's fantasy relevant? Or do you think it's going to be the type of thing where all of the Golden Knights are going to be available as free agents in most like shallowish leagues? It's hard to say. It's been so long since we had an expansion team and so much in the NHL has changed since the last time. It's been 17 years since the league added Columbus and Minnesota. Remember the year before that they added Atlanta. The year before that they added Nashville. So for fun, this is a a fun opportunity for us to revisit the top scorers on the most recent expansion teams. Elon, I'm curious if you can name any of them. I'm going to pause quickly. I only put initials in the doc and so you can peek for a hint or not if you want to. So first off, Nashville in 1998-1999, their leading score had 53 points in 72 games. Oh, my God. Brian. <laughs> like... Okay. All right. You just jump. I'm going to go through it. You jump in if you think you know it. Uh, Cliff Ronning was the leader in Nashville. Okay. Let uh, me actually look at your initials and see if that will help. This would be a okay. fun game to play with the chat room. But unfortunately, there's this delay. All right. And then Atlanta, the next year coming into the league in 1999-2000. Their leading scorer had 50 points in 81 games, and his name was... Okay, so Brian's giving me the acronym AB, and I think I've got this one, Antoine Burnett. You're, you're painfully close. Yes. Andrew Burnett. <laughs> Andrew Burnett, good job. Ray Ferraro, current color analyst and one of the best in the biz, IMO. Uh, he was also, I think he was second on the team in scoring. Okay, and then Columbus, this is one that I remembered. In fact, I remembered the top two from Columbus in their first season They actually had the most successful expansion scorer of this group. He had 56 points in 68 games on a 60-point pace. His initials were GS for everyone playing at home. Um, Former Vancouver Canuck, just like Cliff Running. Oh, boy. GS. Give me the first name. Jeff. Jeff. Sanderson. Sanderson. Jeff Sanderson. Yeah, 60-point pace in Columbus in their expansion year. Espen Knutson who I know I drafted several years around that time, was also uh, near Cliff Running's numbers. And then finally in Minnesota, this one you will never get. His initials are SP. He had 39 points in 58 games. I wonder if even like hardcore Minnesota, I bet hardcore Minnesota fans could get this. Uh, Marion Gabrick was not it. He was second on the team in scoring and actually not even really close to this guy. I'm not even going to let you guess. It's impossible. Well, let me just try to guess. But okay, first of all, by the way, just to prove that I'm a hardcore Ottawa Senators fan, I know that Norm McIver led the Sens in their first season. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Okay, give me the first name for SP on Minnesota. Even this, I don't think will be enough. Scott. Scott. Oh, oh, well, you know there's a P. I'm like, wow. (laughs) And it's not Scott Mellenby. Michael in the chat room is saying Scott Pellerin. Is that the yeah, answer? But, yeah, but he looked it up because he, he followed it know? up with who TF is that? <laughs> uh, so Scott Pellerin. Okay, so anyway, the point of this fun exercise was to see that the only real standout offensive performance belongs to that pair, Sanderson and Knutson in Columbus, who paced for about 60 points each. And I mean, again, it's hard to extrapolate that to mean anything. I imagine the odds are pretty long for Las Vegas to find high-end offensive talent. Um, you know, I think their best team-building prospects from the expansion draft are going to come to them on the back end and in net. But there probably are a handful of forwards across the NHL who could get near 60 points if elevated to the right role. So the question is, are those guys going to be exposed 
And if they are going to be exposed, will Vegas be able to identify and draft them and give them the roles that they can thrive in? I'm really looking forward to seeing the list of who's available. And we'll definitely have more to say about the offensive prospects in Vegas once the list is out there and they pick their team. But I would not be optimistic that there's more than, say, one player who can crack 55 points. 60 would be wonderful. And Gerard Galland. Sorry, I said it incorrectly. Well, no, in the, in the Anglophone media, I, I hear him frequently reference as Gerard Galland. But yes, if we're, all, if we're all paying respect to his heritage, Gerard Galland. Yeah, so Gerard Galland, is he like an off? Uh, whatever, we'll get into it later, right? I, do you have any thoughts on him? Like, is he a good coach? Is he an uh, offensive or defensive-minded coach? Well, he was the one that saw that huge spike in shooting percentage in Florida last season and then it didn't sustain into the seasons we all expected and he was the one who got the brunt of the blame and now they're resetting everything they they're not keeping the coach that replaced him in the interim Dale Talon is back in the general manager's seat so I I don't know what to make of him I mean he has a resume uh, of a good coach and he seems like somebody who's a, a reasonably smart guy behind the bench. I don't see him as like a strong offensive or defensive coach. If I had a profile for him, I guess it would be balanced. Although who in the league would you have in mind? Like if you're thinking of offensive coach, I guess Bruce Boudreaux, but I'm trying to think of anyone else who's made their name on creating huge offense and not defense. I don't like Dallas. It comes to mind, which we'll get to right now because Dallas. I'm asking for a specific coach. Sorry to interrupt your segue. Uh, Lindy Ruff. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. He did have some great, some high scoring sabers during his tenure there. I don't know, but okay. I don't know. Let's go. To, let's talk about Dallas. Okay. So Dallas didn't renew Lindy Ruff's contract and they hired Ken Hitchcock, who was on St. Louis, as we all recall, uh, for the last few years. And this year he like left halfway through and, and gave Yeo the job. And he's been really good, obviously, in, in terms of how St. Louis made it to the second round. And we'll get to that later. Let's talk about Dallas, though. Brian, I'm very curious to know how you think this affects specifically. Tyler Sagan, Jamie Benn, okay? They both had disappointing seasons relative to what we expect from them. Uh, based on their final numbers, if you take a look, Sagan ended with 72 points in 82 games, 301 shots on goal, which is great. But, you know, 72 points is a guy who had been over a point per game in all of his seasons over the past, like, two, three years. Jamie Benn ended with 69 points in 77 games. Obviously, these are still very great numbers, but maybe not elite numbers, not, like, draft in your first round for sure numbers, so both kind of limped, especially to the finish, right? So that's really where they heard people like Tyler Sagan, especially only 13 points in his last 22 games, burned a lot of people in their fantasy playoffs, including Peter, our patron, if you're listening. Uh, sorry if I'm rubbing it in right now. Maybe you were trying to forget. Also, Ben only had 15 points in his last 21 games. Do you expect that Ben and Sagan can get back to their point-per-game paces that they usually have next season? Like, does Hitchcock being the coach instead of Lindy Ruff, does that help or hurt them like uh Tyler Sagan by the way like people are gonna have a chance to draft him later than usual like we are have been doing in our patron only Facebook group so I'll shout out the group right now and you could become a patron for any uh donation amount by the way check out keepingcarlson.com slash patron and you could join in on this we've been having a lot of fun Dave has been setting this up every day we all vote on who we think should be the next player ranked and we're coming up with a full player ranking for the couple for the keeping Carlson ultimate patron fan tracks league stats anyway We've done 13 days of this now, and just today, Tyler Sagan finally got voted in. I'll go over some of the other players who've been ranked a bit later, but Sagan came in at 13. Last year, he was six spots earlier, so a big drop for Tyler.
Tyler Sagan, which obviously means if this is representative and these are the smartest people playing fantasy hockey, Patriots are keeping Carlson. So clearly you're going to be able to get Sagan later. The question is, has he actually fallen to being like the 13th most, most valuable player in fantasy instead of top five, top six? Or do you think that this was just like a bad rough end of the year and now with the new coach, things are going to be rosy? Well, it sure was a rough end to the year. I made my thoughts on Lindy pretty clear over the last several months and think the change in Dallas is going to be good. You know, things just weren't really working under him. So even bringing in a defensive-minded coach or known for being defensive-minded in Ken Hitchcock, I don't think can really hurt more than Ruff's sort of mess. I mean, it's not, we've talked about this, like it's not fair to call it Ruff's mess because the back end was so weak and the goalies were so weak, but I don't think he did the best job possible. Like I don't think he maximized value from that lineup. So uh, I, I think Hitchcock on the whole is going to be a net gain for Dallas next year. And is like, let's just say if they do keep the same goalies, he's helped a team compete before with weak goaltending. Hitchcock did it in St. Louis with Elliott and Allen, who like, you know, maybe they're just average. Maybe they're exposed to be that way this year. And before that, Hitchcock in Philadelphia, I remember when he had goalies like Roman Chichmanic and Robert Esch, that he was still succeeding with, uh, but without getting too much into the goaltending situation. I think it's going to be good. I think there's going to be structure, but I think even if it's defensive-minded, it's still going to help Ben and Sagan be able to at least be point-per-game guys. Maybe it lowers the ceiling a bit. Remember how frustrating it was to see Hitchcock underdeploy Tarasenko and prefer players like Troy Brower over him in offensive situations in last year's playoffs. I don't know who in the Dallas lineup would qualify for that sort of role right now, but Again, even so, I'm still like, I feel like Dallas was pretty low last year. So I think a bounce back is able to be expected. Okay, that's fair. Also, we had an interesting debate on Facebook about whether you should draft Ben or Sagan first. Uh, Mark here in the chat is saying he wanted to go with Ben. The thing for me is that I think to compare these two guys, it really depends on what stats or leagues count because... Uh, Jamie Ben is better for hits, but the cupful doesn't count hits. We do count shots, though, and Sagan takes a good number of shots more than Jamie Ben. There could be an argument for Ben if you think that Sagan is only going to be center eligible. Obviously, there's value over replacement if you go for a winger over a center early on. But Sagan was actually right wing eligible for most of the season. So I think if Sagan is right wing eligible and your league doesn't count hits, I think Sagan is an easy pick over Ben. Like, I feel like they'll get similar amounts of points. I'd be curious to know Mark's uh, reasoning. He says, more consistent for first round pick. Obviously, you can't go wrong, too wrong with both of them. I would just go for the extra shots on goal. They're probably going to have similar power play points also. Then another player that I'm interested in is John Klingberg over in Dallas. He, of course, struggled last year, at least for some of it. And he even got bumped off the top power play for a while. He still ended with 49 points, which is really good. But the year before that, he had 58 points. That's a pretty big jump going from like a 60-point guy to a 50-point guy. I wonder, obviously, being from the top power play that must have been part of the reason why he dropped in his production and of course he struggled for a bit at the beginning of the year but like a new coach does that mean that we're more confident that he'll get back on the top power play or maybe has Essa Lindell staked a claim to get that top power play role like any sense of if you think Klingberg should be closer to a 60 point guy or a 50 point guy next year with the new coach I'm still high on Klingberg I'm not worried about him it was so bizarre with him losing his job at the end of the year. Either that was Jim Nill asking Ruff to play Lindell Moore to see what they've got in him, or it was Ruff just being weird and trying to save his job, or I don't know, maybe just like Lindell Moore as a person. Looking at how Hitchcock has used his defenseman in St. Louis, he had no issue having Kevin Shattenkirk 
out there as his power play quarterback, even though he wasn't necessarily his most trusted blue liner defensively in St. Louis. So I don't know why Klingberg wouldn't get the same treatment out of the gate. I think it'll be up to him to pick it up and succeed with the role he's given. And I would go into next season at this point, not knowing what's going to happen in the offseason, but at this point, I consider him the top power play quarterback. Yeah, so maybe Klingberg and Sagan and Ben are all potentially like buy low guys, guys you could draft a little bit later next season and you could hope that they get back to their production from a couple seasons ago. Okay, another coaching change. LA hired John Stevens after firing uh, Sutter. So I guess with LA, like my main, I just have one question to you about LA, Brian, and that is about Andre Kopitar. Okay, like what happened to him this year? Like, was it just a sign that he's aging and we should forget about 70 point Kopitar? Like he went from a guy who gets 70 points every year, pretty much like clockwork. And then this year he put up a measly 52 points in 76 games. So maybe give him like a 55 point pace, but a huge drop from what we usually expect from him. He has tended to start slow most seasons, but he's always really picked it up in the second half to make it more than worth it that you drafted him, especially for your fantasy hockey playoffs. It didn't happen this year. He had a bit of a hot streak at some point this year, but then he kind of fizzled out again. Is there any way we could blame the coach and expect that now with John Stevens, Andre Kopitar will be back to being 70 point Andre Kopitar? Or maybe do we just have to admit that the guy is 29, I guess, on the other side of an aging curve. And maybe now we should be expecting closer to 60 points and 70 points next year. I'm not going to blame the coach for what happened to Kopitar. I'm going to blame it on the GM, Dean Lombardi, for not offering Kopitar anybody to play with. And then finally had a Ginla play with Kopitar. But while they succeeded somewhat offensively, they suffered defensively. Uh, And part of the hiring announcement for John Stevens today was that they wanted to activate their offense while keeping up their defensive standards, which is obviously easier said than done. But that hopefully tips in favor of Kopitar bouncing back. I don't think that like I don't have much personal concern that Kopitar can still get to 70 points. I don't think he's too old to get there. I think he'll need help. So we'll see what that first line looks like at the end of the offseason going into like the first couple weeks of the season. I actually have more confidence in Kopitar putting up 65, 70 points than I do in Jonathan Quick keeping up the standard that he had set under Sutter. I think this new coach destabilizes him more than it helps or hurts Kopitar. And that's really worth watching. If you have Quick in a keeper league, I actually do because I thought he was set in LA for a while, not thinking that Sutter could ever be fired from that job. And if you're planning on drafting Jonathan Quick, hoping for the same like league average or above league average because he's protected by Sutter, that's not going to be there. And we know that Sutter and his system played a large part in Jonathan Quick's numbers. We saw it because Peter Budai was able to succeed in that system. And Peter Budai, like I don't think, would be a 920 goalie over any length of time with most other teams in the league. So what they do defensively is really worth watching. How you value Quick is really important. And we'll see how they deploy their roster defensively because some of what's going to happen on their blue line might come out in free agency and expansion. Like, we don't know if they're going to still have Alec Martinez and Jake Muzzin at the end of the summer or Braden McNabb might be exposed. I know he was in our patrons mock expansion draft. So that's the one I'm looking for. That's the name I'm looking for. Jonathan Quick. I think he's going to be the one the most impacted by this coaching change. 
Okay, so it sounds to me like you're going to be trying to steal Andre Kopitar in your drafts. I feel like this is like a cupful exclusive for the people in Tier 1, because if you think he could be a 70-point guy, no one's going to be drafting him as a 65, 70-point guy this year after he let so many people down last year. Uh, There's a question in the chat room. Mark is asking, what about Carter? I feel like Jeff Carter, like what can we really say? Like he had a great season, 66 points. The year before he had 62. Uh, I mean, probably the year before that he had 62. I think he's like pretty clearly over 60-point guy, probably not a 70-point guy, and I'd expect around the same. I, I don't know. I don't know if this is like a hot take. I don't really have much to say about Jeff Carter. I feel like he's just been kind of rolling. Uh, Brian, so you said that, what did you say that they're saying LA's strategy is going to be for next year? They're going to try to have better offense while having good defense? Yeah, they're saying they want to activate, was the word they use, activate their offensive players and skill while still maintaining the defensive standards that the team has become known for. And like I said, easier said (laughs) than done. Like every team in the league would love to do that in some way or the other. Yeah, our strategy is we're going to score like a lot of goals and we're going to try to still (laughs) like not let in a lot of goals. That's our strategy for next year. So yeah, and we hope to have some good goaltending and and strong special teams. And we're going to, that's our plan for next year. So good luck to them. Are they? Well, by saying that. I mean, well, like, no, no, I, I was being, I, I was tongue in cheek. I was joining you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Only I could be tongue in cheek. You're the serious one on the show. Okay. Okay. Uh, so we have a, a couple other teams that fired their coaches, but haven't hired anyone new yet. We have Buffalo, Florida, Vancouver. I wonder if maybe we should just wait for a future episode once they hire new coaches before we talk about players who are potentially helped or hurt, unless maybe you have a specific player or a specific team that you, you want to talk about. Yeah. On Vancouver. Uh, Just quickly, Louis Erickson is the one that I'm going to wonder about next year. We saw Willie Desjardins torpedo Radim Verbattle two seasons ago now and torpedo Louis Erickson last year. Although I don't know if he is the one who's really culpable. I don't know if with this coaching change, they've really gotten to the root of the problem that has kept many Canucks players from having any fantasy relevance, including the Sedins. Like this new coach still have to deal with the perception that Brandon Sutter is a franchise cornerstone and is going to have to deploy him that way. And I also, yeah, I, I want Erickson to be taken care of. I want Sedin's to be taken care of. And I just don't know if the coach is going to have enough power to do that themselves with what seems to be some really deep-rooted, misguided ideas in the Canucks front office. So Brian, make a prediction right now. Who's going to lead Vancouver in scoring next year? That, I got one. I, I don't know if you're going to keep that silence in or not. Like, I, I, I'm baffled. I don't know. I would say Daniel Sedin or Louis Erickson is my best bet. Do you have a dark horse in mind? I have another pick that I don't think is a dark horse. I think it might be the front runner. I'll say Bo Horvat. He's been like the most consistent scoring Canuck over you're the right. past couple of years. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a good one. That's a good one. Escaped my mind. The dark horse would probably be Brock Besser, who uh, Michael in the chat room just shouted out. And I know Cam is yelling at his uh, phone at home when he's listening to this. A lot of people love Brock Besser, but I think Horvat is the the pick, though. You would think a Sedin could still do it. It'll be fun. Over the summer, once again, we'll have to have the discussion of when do you draft these darn Sedins. You know, two seasons ago, they were good. Three seasons ago, they were bad. Last season, bad. Who knows? Probably not great, I'd imagine. But you never know. And Elon, is there any other player? So now we're down to Buffalo and Florida that you're curious about with the coaching change? Well, I'll throw out there one player that I am interested in watching. So with Buffalo uh, firing their coach and their GM, so really like cleaning house. Obviously, there's a lot of talent there in the top six, but I guess it's mainly the defense that was a problem. Robin Leonard was not the problem, though, right? He had a 920 save percentage on a week 
defensive team. To me, that seems really good. He was also like one of the top guys in saves in the league, which is both because he played a lot and because Buffalo let in a lot of shots. So I wonder if Robin Leonard might be a good dark horse for next year, if they could hire a coach and maybe also improve their defense over the offseason. Like, I feel like he's still not the type of guy that's going to be drafted too high. But if you have to pick a goalie who, like, wasn't super fantasy valuable this past season in most leagues, even though if you look at his save percentage and his saves, he, he was. But I guess for wins, you know, he, he wasn't able to get you too many. I wonder if next year, maybe if Buffalo knows what they're doing, which is maybe a big if, he's a guy I'm just kind of thinking about that I'd like to see if they could improve. I think Robin Leonard's the guy who I'm going to have my eye on. Yeah, if only they could improve on defense, then Robin Leonard would be way more valuable. But they have big problems on defense. And from their tanking years, when they tanked to get Eichel, they had guys who just couldn't play and like just forgot about starting to accrue and gather really good pieces and develop them. You know, you look at a team like Toronto, who is succeeding now. And I think part of the reason that the Buffalo management team was let go in the coach and GM is because they're seeing Toronto have this success and this strong, thorough roster that's competing with a cup favorite. They're saying, well, why, why them and not us? And the reason is Toronto had like, you know, they had their Gardner, they had their Riley, and then they signed Zaitsev. On the back end, they were doing pretty well. Meanwhile, Buffalo got Ristolainen, which is great offensively. There's still a lot of argument over whether he has the defensive acumen necessary to be a top pairing guy or not. Uh, you know, Some people say that his defensive numbers are so bad because that's by design. That's how Bilesma's system is set up. And then they say that's just an excuse. He really is bad. But Anyway, the, the, the point of the matter is, is that they don't have a steady enough blue line to protect a goalie consistently. I think Robin Lehner is one reason why last year didn't look as bad as it could have in Buffalo. I think he single-handedly saved that team some embarrassment, and I don't know how quickly they're going to be able to rebuild their blue line into one that can protect him. And the jury's still out on Lehner himself, too. Last year was definitely promising. I'd like to think he's a league average or maybe slightly above goalie. I don't know, though, what GM and what coach can fix this team and how quickly their challenge will be to see if they can do it to have a contender ready to support Eichel within the next couple years. Yeah, well, I mean, I would have thought that you would have said the GM did a great job because he got Cody Franzen, who you thought was such an amazing defenseman. But yeah, obviously Buffalo. Yeah, who do they have back there? Georges has been there for a while. And Bogosian. like Kulikov, I think got a lot of yeah. ice time. Well, they, they bet big on Kulikov. They thought he was going to be really solid and, and he wasn't. Okay, so now let's sort of get back going into what's been going on in the playoffs. Before we get into I know, Brian, you want to talk about each series and you have some smart analysis. I can't wait to hear. I wanted to talk about some players who have just kind of shown up out of nowhere for the playoffs that didn't play very much, if at all, during the regular season. And I think it would be fun to talk about these guys because these are the types of guys that a lot of people who draft for their leagues next year, they might be going off stats from last year and these guys won't show up at all. So you're going to have free pick to take guys like Vladimir Sabatka, who I want to start with. So he returned to the Blues right before the playoffs. He returned to fulfill a one-year obligation to the club that I guess he had before he went to Russia. And he also signed a three-year, $10.5 million contract extension beginning next year. 
And the reason why I'm bringing him up, I, I didn't plan on bringing him up. Like I didn't bring him up in our season finale episode. I didn't think he was too relevant, but he actually had a decent series versus Minnesota. He had an assist on the Payarvi game winning goal yesterday. He had one goal, two assists in five games overall, but he had a lot of ice time, average 18 and a half minutes. And he was on a line with Steen and Sanford. And he also was on the top power play with Schwartz and Steen and Tarasenko and Pitrangelo. Of course, maybe like Paul Stasny's just coming back from injury. Maybe eventually Stasny will bump Sabatka in the second round. So that could be something that we'll watch in the series of St. Louis versus who's St. Louis playing next round. I know Edmonton's against Anaheim, which means St. Louis against Ed- Nashville. Nashville, right. Yes. Yeah, oh, that'll be a fun series. Oh, Brian, in our cupful winners and ho- and Kevin Carlson host pool that we did in the last episode, you picked Forsberg and Johansson, if I recall, and I have Tarasenko and Jaden Schwartz. So this is going to be the big decider, maybe, or one of them, of which of us ends up ahead. So that'll be a fun series. But okay, back to Vladimir Sabatka. Is he worth drafting next year? I guess, obviously, we can see what he does for the rest of the playoffs. But you know me. I love my top power play guys. His career high is only 33 points in 61 games. So maybe he's not relevant at all. But just, just curious, is there anything there? I don't think so. I think he's had a bigger role because Stasny has maybe not been able to get up to full speed yet. Uh, it, you're like you're talking about him as a free pick next year. You can have him if you want. You can have him for free. That is cool with me. I think he's more of a defense first player still with some offensive upside. I don't see him getting drafted in most formats, though. Okay, so maybe he's just the type of guy, don't drive. No one else is going to draft him. You don't need to draft him. But maybe star him, put him on your watch list as someone to watch going into the season. He could be maybe an early free agent pickup that could pay dividends if you see that he's getting top six deployment and top power play. Okay, another guy who made his NHL debut for the Boston Bruins in game one versus the Sens was Charlie McAvoy. And he, for most of the series, was getting the second most ice time amongst defensemen just behind Zdeno Chera. McAvoy was playing like 26 minutes and 23 seconds on average per game before today. Plus, he was on the top power play. Like, does this ever happen? A guy, a rookie, like 18 years old, coming in and jumping right into the top power play? Of course, Tory Krug is injured. Otherwise, Krug would be there. So I'm not saying, you know, obviously, we got to keep that in mind. There's context here. But McAvoy had a power play assist in game three and even strength assist in game five. I think he got another power play assist today. The Bruins are out. So now we'll have to see next year. But like, I'm curious, who is this guy? Is he a threat to Tory Krug for the top power play and like top defenseman role next year? And maybe is he worth considering late in the draft? Maybe does he have hashtag team Wierenski potential? Someone who came in out of nowhere and took over as his team's top power play defenseman and had a great rookie season. That is huge billing to give McAvoy. And he had a great series. Like he looked beyond his years. He looked much more than a 19-year-old playing his first games in the league. He had huge minutes big responsibilities, and looked surprisingly comfortable in his first couple outings. There were a few shaky moments, but I think he, I think he found his way through the series. And as the 14th overall pick from this past year's entry draft, it's exciting to think that he could be an impact player before long. I know Eric Carlson in the handshake line today had some very nice words for him, apparently, and that's not sarcastic at all. It looked like he really stopped to talk about him and say, hey, kid. Oh. You're 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 gonna be great one day. You could be just like me if you practice hard and drink your milk. That's the corniest thing. That's such a comedia story, right? That's gonna be on the front page of the Ottawa Sun. Yeah, it was gifed like within seconds, and everyone was talking how great it was for both of them. What a moment. Uh anyway, going back to like McAvoy versus Warensky, I'm not about to get Warensky level excited about McAvoy because Tori Krug is still there, and he has a higher bar for McAvoy to have to clear than Seth Jones 
was for Wierenski. I think I would think of McAvoy more in the short term as a top four guy. So maybe you're looking for a Pareko-like start as the best case scenario, looking back to Pareko being behind Shattenkirk and Petrangelo instead of hoping for top building right away in Wierenski. And even Pareko might be a high-end expectation. Remember, Pareko was 22 in his rookie year, while McAvoy is only turning 20 this December. We have long detailed on the show how truly difficult it is and how incredible a task it is when it happens when a defenseman steps up as a young player, like 19, even 20 years old, and is able to have a strong offensive and defensive season. Well, yeah, and I guess I might as well shout him out now. I was going to bring him up later, but another young defenseman who has been carrying his team's top power play because of injuries is Shea Theodore. He's, how old is Shea Theodore? He's 21, so a little bit older, but he's also had a great playoffs himself. Two goals and three assists in the four-game sweep over Calgary. So he's someone also to watch, and I might be asking you later in the show if he'll be the next hashtag Team Wierenski who comes out of nowhere. Uh, He was like on the team this season. I know he was kind of up and down all throughout the season, going to the minors and up, but maybe if he proves himself to be a capable top power play defenseman in the playoffs, could that carry over? I guess maybe a general question for you. How often does playoff, like I know you'll say like you're not supposed to put too much stock in playoff stats, small sample size, all of that, but just specifically like deployment, can a player earn deployment or at least a shot at deployment for the next season based on playoff performance due to injury like can Shea Theodore it's not as if you know I guess Fowler was really good at the start of the year for Anaheim getting a lot of points and then he really petered off near the end uh Theodore uh, he did have that one stretch I think it was two seasons ago when he got called up and got so many points before he got sent back down when he was on the top power play clearly he has offensive shops he's another guy I'll be watching next year who do you draft McAvoy or Shea Theodore well, to answer all your questions, like I'm sure it helps have a good postseason performance, even when someone's injured. But I still think like that old trope where like if you get injured and you lose your spot, you're generally offered a chance to win it back unless you're Mark andre Fleury, in which case you need to wait for the other goalie who supplanted you to get injured for you to have a chance to mm-hmm. earn back your spot. Uh, it's nice that uh, Theodore looks ready. There's still that huge logjam at the front of that Ducks decor, but it does seem that Theodore has at least leapfrogged Hannes Lindholm for dibs on offensive miss because Lindholm has been healthy and playing. If you're asking me between Theodore and McAvoy, I would say McAvoy seems like a sure thing for 35-40, but maybe Theodore has a higher ceiling. And but uh, I don't even know why how that came out of my mouth. 35-40 for McAvoy, that's that's high coming from me. That would be great if we can Hmm. see that. Maybe I'm trying to say that I feel like McAvoy is going to have a top four role for sure in Boston next year, whereas I'm just still not sure where Theodore fits on a crowded Anaheim blue line. Yeah, I think this is a classic ceiling floor situation. I think Shea Theodore has a much better chance of becoming the top power play defenseman over McAvoy because McAvoy has to usurp Tori Krug while Theodore has to usurp like Fowler or Vatanen who both, you know, didn't really grab that job. And Theodore seems to have so much upside. So I'd say Theodore probably has upside for more points. I could see him being like a 50 point defenseman if he gets that role, but also, you know, he could, end up being a bottom pairing guy who gets sent to the minors like it was last year. But at some point they have to stick with him, right? He's clearly good. I guess we'll see how far Anaheim goes. Hard to talk about it now. And then we're going to listen back in a couple of weeks and realize that everything changed in Anaheim. Easier to talk about the teams who've been eliminated. You know, with McAvoy, we know there's not going to be any new news until next year's training camp. Uh, Brian, I'm ready to talk about some playoff series unless you have something you want to say first. No, I was going to suggest we do. I mean, we've already sort of covered St. Louis and you just mentioned off season. So maybe we can just, uh, what do you say we, we run down a few bits about that series and then take it from there? 
Sure. Well, you brought up Jake Allen, right? So let's just say yeah. it again. He was so, so good. 1.47 goals against average, 956 save percentage. And that includes his measly 919 save percentage yesterday in the 4-3 OT win to clinch the series. So Jake Allen was so good. He was so bad for most of the year, but he picked things up at the end. He had a 938 save percentage in his last 25 games. And that still only brought him to 915 on the season, by the way. So that just goes to show how bad he was at the start of the year. Everyone was really regretting drafting him in their leagues. And then he probably helped a lot of people win their fantasy championships. And now probably people who have him in keeper pools are so excited to have him after seeing him dominate in the playoffs. I'm very curious to know. That's my first question. I don't know what else you want to talk about in this series. But to me, we got to start with Jake Allen here. And has he like jumped up your books? Like when we're going to do Schmore Goalies Borg later in the summer series, you have your goalie tiers. And generally, you know, a goalie who's on a good team, that's a good goalie. That's the for sure number one. That ranks very high. That's like a tier one or tier two guy. Is Jake Allen in that spot now? Or is it still too early to tell? Maybe he's not actually a very good goalie and he's just on a good run. It has only been four games. And the last game, he was much more human for whatever that's worth. Yeah, the biggest question here is, did this really come out of nowhere? I Yeah, he's been phenomenal this series. And like you cited already, Elon, he had a fantastic 25 games leading into the series. In fact, it all started with that St. Louis coaching change back on February 1st. Since that point, I'm going to repeat the number because it's so impressive. He had a 938 save percentage over his last 25 appearances in the season, 16-7-2 and two record in that time. And he notched three shutouts which would be like a piece of 10 shutouts over the course of a full regular season. So that's all very impressive. I still like the coaching change is reason to think that maybe that 899 Allen that we saw for a lot of the year was not, uh, was not really him. They weren't playing a system in St. Louis that catered to his strengths and things just weren't working for him. Do I consider him a top tier goalie? I don't know. I don't know. I think we'll have to watch a bit more of the playoffs. Not that I'm going to get any valuable information there, but I do think he probably slots in to the top 10 because he seems to have erased out as to whether he's a number one goalie. And there just aren't a ton of guys in that position in the league who are unchallenged number one goalies. That said, he was just months, mere months ago, legitimately challenged by Carter Hutton. And I'd like to think that that level of play is behind him with the new coach and a new system that works his benefits, but a bad start next year could certainly throw everything into question. So yeah, he's a great number one goalie at the moment, but still on shaky ground. I'll put him ambiguously in my top 10, maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of Martin Jones and Freddie Anderson, Pecorine, Tuka Rask, that sort of class. Yeah, well, that's probably like at least tier three, if not tier two. Like we're talking about decent guys that you can probably draft as your number one goalie for your fantasy team and still do pretty well if you get kind of lucky and they don't end up being the one that flames out like Tuka Rask did for me in my fantasy hockey playoffs. But anyways, let's not get into that. Good question in the chat room here. Since it was Minnesota versus St. Louis, who would you draft first next year, Dubnik or Allen? Dubnik was so good at the start of the year then was bad at the end or, you know, not great. And Allen was the exact opposite. And I guess they both had decent playoff series, but clearly Jake Allen was the better goalie. But Dubnik, he was so good. He wasn't even nominated for the Vesna, though. That's how bad the end of his season ended up. Who would you draft ahead right now for next year? In a one-year league, obviously you take Allen in a keeper league because he's so much younger. Well, let's not get overwhelmed by recency bias. I feel like if you flipped Dubnik's season and you have that start at the beginning of the year, and then he picks it up and plays at his highest level at the end, I bet he gets that Vesna nod because that's a great story and that's a great reason for him to be nominated with everybody. Seeing that play while they vote 
I picked Dubnik personally. Minnesota was dominant this series. Like they're the better team. And over the course of the season, I still think he's going to get you more wins next year. And I, even if not, like even if they were on equal teams, I still think Devin Dubnik appears to be a better goaltender than Jake Allen. Dubnik wasn't bad this series. He had a 925. He held his own at times, but there were some key moments where he couldn't. But let's not pin the whole series on him in those key moments. Like you have to look through the roster in Minnesota to see what went wrong and figure out, okay, you've got the puck at the end of the game. Your season's on the line. Who's sick do you want it on? Like, is there a name that jumps to mind? Like Elon, who would you choose? Sorry, Brian. I'm a bit distracted by Mark in the chat room because he's very upset that I didn't say that he's the one who asked the question about Dubnik versus Allen. Sorry, Mark. That was a fantastic question. Thank you so much for being here and for asking it. What was your question to me now? Key moment in the game for Minnesota. What players stick do you want the puck on? Whose name jumps to mind? Oh, I guess, uh, well, I don't know. You, at the start of the year, we would have said Parisi, wait, right? It's tough. Wait, you, you need to answer this as if I, that was my casual ask. That wasn't my show ask. Oh, no, no. I was totally going to keep all this in the show, including giving Mark his due credit <laughs> for his question, obviously. Oh, my gosh. So go, go ahead. Ask it in your show ask now, as if I, I already said, did. No, I know, but then I said I wasn't listening because Mark asked this awesome question. And now, and then I said, what was the question again? So now ask it and then I'll answer it. Or do you not want Mark to get credit for his question? Oh my gosh. Who's our new patron that we just got? You lost me. You have two entry points to answering this question. I don't know why you're asking for a third. I was starting to to answer and you said I didn't do it. Answer again. Just answer. Go for it. So I feel like it's a tough question, obviously. That's why you're asking it. Like at the start of the year, I guess Parisi would have been the, our go-to guy. Eric Stahl had such a good year. He had that injury, by the way, in the last game. Hopefully he's okay. I know he got discharged from the hospital. He, like, ran, he got his head uh, into the boards. I saw it. it was, anyway, uh, I don't know. But then obviously Koivu and Granlund, both were so good on that line. It's really hard. I honestly, I don't have an answer for you, Brian. Like I feel like it's definitely an offense by committee on there. At least that's what it looked like in terms of the stats. Yeah, so that's it, right? Like you look at St. Louis and you say, okay, there's a there's a game breaker there in Tarasenko and Jaden Schwartz has been pretty good lately. Although I don't think he's any better than say Mikhail Granlund or Eric Stahl, who wasn't available at the end of the game, of course. Zach Parisi, Miko Koivu, Charlie Coyle. But can you count on any of these guys to have a game breaking moment? Maybe Granlund is the closest one to it. So I don't know. Parisi, Parisi, you could count. Like he could have a game breaking moment. He's done it many times in his career. Yeah, he could have won, and he has done it many times, except this year was not a year in which he had many of them. I don't think, I think I'd have him like third, maybe fourth on my list of wild players to 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 have the puck to get a shot off at the last moment. So like this all equates to what comes next for Minnesota next year. Do they keep scoring by committee? Do they keep this balanced top nine approach next year? And that's important for rating their fantasy value. There are two things I'll be looking for going into next season for the Wild. And the first will be if Bruce Boudreaux changes anything for next year. Like he, this regular season success and playoff flameout is a theme in his career. So does he trade off some of the former in search of postseason success? And mind you, the last time he did that was in Washington, where he was let go after trying to tweak his coaching style in response to past playoff disappointments. But the poor guy suffers big setbacks every April with some small sample superpower. And this year, that was Allen. And that renders long view efforts of his useless. And I imagine he's looking pretty hard in the mirror going into next year to see if there's anything he should change. So we'll see if that's going by committee situation changes. But 
I don't know if it really can, because the other thing we're looking for is what the Wild do, if anything, about Ryan Suter and Zach Parisi, who account for a combined 21% of the Wild's cap space. They're both 32. They're both signed for eight more years, and they're both coming off the most disappointing seasons of their careers, in which they played lesser roles than ever before. So that's going to hurt. I mean, they still have Dubnik cheap at $4.5 million for the next while, uh, but they have Grenland as a restricted free agent, also Nino Niederreiter. And, you know, Grenland could easily get more than $5 million on his next contract, and that might even be conservative. I don't know. All this to say Minnesota needs to go back to the drawing board after having such an amazing season just because Jake Allen decided to show up. <laughs> well, so I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see which Minnesota player gets ranked first on our Keeping Carlson patron rankings that we're doing in our Facebook group. I guess Dubnik will probably go first if I'd have to guess. But after that, I'll be curious to see who goes next. Parisi, because he has shots on goal. Huh. I don't know. It'll be interesting. Okay, uh, Brian, ready to move on to another series? I want to talk about the Penguins in Columbus. Okay, cool. I want to talk about Chicago, but go ahead. <laughs> okay, let's talk about Chicago. Well, no, it's actually, it's more off-season stuff. Like, you know, it's easy to to look at who played well, but we're also looking at potential movers in the off-season. Like, if you're in a dynasty league, these are things you need to keep in mind. Well, first off, every Chicago player was a total disappointment, and I don't think anyone's stock significantly changes based on their performances. Uh, remember that Pecorine tied Jonathan Taves and Patrick Kane for the team's lead in Chicago with two points through the series? Uh, and Rene, by the way, huge hero, 976 save percentage, two shutouts. He stopped 123 out of 126 shots and 110 out of 111 at even strength. And then you look to the whole Nashville roster and like everyone came through in some way, only two players who played all four games went pointless in the series for the Predators. And those were Matt Irwin and Mike Fisher, the top line of Arvidsson, Ryan Johansson, Philip Forsberg combined for 15 points. So that, I mean, we'll see what the, they're still active. So things could still happen for the rest of the playoffs, but that could be a fantastic line going forward and getting to those offseason ramifications for Chicago that you need to consider. Scott Darling likely on his way out. It sure sounded that way in his end of season interviews. He's likely off in search of a contract that puts him as a number one or one A or even a one B, which would obviously be better than his current scenario as a certain number two behind Corey Crawford. And I think he's got the potential to be a solid, at least tandem goalie. I think he's a good guy to grab and a deep keeper if he happens to be available and your league is active through the summer, just in preparation for where he might end up. I would actually have him right up there with guys like Ben Bishop and Steve Mason as the top potential UFA goalie options out there. Ryan Miller, Brian Elliott, and Jonathan Bernier also scheduled to hit the market. But I'd say Darling is in my top three. And then looking at the other stuff, uh, Richard Panic needs a raise. He's a restricted free agent. Campbell and Desjardins are UFAs and the Hawks don't have a lot of wiggle room. They have less than $3 million to sign one forward, two D-men and a backup goalie. So you can bet that they are desperately trying to unload Brent Seabrook in his unreasonably large deal on a team that's foolish enough to take it. I'm sure there's at least one of those remaining in the league. 
Well, we'll see. Teams all over the league are concerned about the Caps. I don't know if Brent Seabrook will be able to find a new home with his contract. Brian, it's interesting. Like Chicago, I was actually just listening to Dmitry Filipovich's Hockey PDO cast, and they were talking about the Chicago series. And they pointed out that Chicago, they were, you know, ranked first in the Western Conference. That's why they got this quote unquote cushy matchup against the bottom wildcard Nashville Predators who destroyed them. But like Chicago may not have been as good as people think they are. Like they had a lot of overtime and shootout wins. And so, Maybe that made their record look a little bit better than what it actually would be, you know, in playoff hockey where you don't have three-on-three overtime and shootouts. Also, their goal differential was really good, but the NHL does this weird thing where if your team gets a shootout win, that actually counts as like a goal for and a goal against for the team that loses the shootout, which is kind of weird. So apparently if you take away those and also empty net goals, their goal differential goes down by a lot. So just to say, Chicago may have not been as good as their record looked which also says to me that maybe Corey Crawford isn't as valuable in fantasy as maybe he looked this year like maybe he got more wins than we should expect for him next year especially like you say if they have to make some offseason moves to balance the budget so I wonder at this point Brian since we were just talking about Jake Allen before who would you rather draft between Allen and like a Corey Crawford Crawford obviously has the pedigree he's been a fantasy stud for years and he's supposed to be on a team that's going to get you a lot of wins but maybe Chicago's not as good as we think maybe they're going to have a big decrease in wins next year if they can't keep getting the luck in the shootouts and overtimes yeah it'll be interesting I think I'd still prefer Crawford because I have a little more faith in him and like he was the reason Chicago had as many wins as they did you're saying maybe they didn't deserve so many and that's true but they deserved even less if he had given them just average goaltending but he stood on his head to steal a lot of games I still think he has that potential and so I it's tough like you look at LA and Chicago, I think, are both potentially dynasties in decline. And we're going to get to one uh, team that's not a dynasty because they'd never won the cup, but who I'm going to suggest go into an intense rebuild coming up later in the show. But for now, between Crawford and Allen, you know, I want to say Crawford. So I'm going to say Crawford. <laughs> okay. What about do, you? Do what you it, it's, it's a tough one. It's a really good question. Thank you. That's that's my job. Coming up with the questions here. Okay. A couple other things. No, about wait, the what's series? your answer? Don't try and move on. Oh, okay. I'm going to say also Crawford. I think it's close. A lot closer than it would have been this year. Cool. So actually, okay. people people were really high on Jake Allen going into the year. Then they were so low on him. I wish you... Uh, tell us if you bought low on him halfway through. Did we recommend for people to buy low on Jake Allen halfway through the season when he was so bad? Or were we saying, ah, we knew he'd suck? I think we said around the coaching change that maybe it's worth considering having a look at him. But I feel like we were maybe more vocal about get Carter Hutton for a spot starter, too. Oh, God. Well, that's what you got to do when you're playing in a fantasy league. Like Ryan L. always says in our Patreon group, when you're playing the spot start game and with lots of moves per week, then you got to consider those things. But yeah, obviously, Jake Allen is the guy we hope you didn't drop, especially in a keeper league. That would have been crazy. By the way, Brian, are our patrons being unfair? A lot of comments after Chicago got eliminated, making fun of how Jonathan Taves is so overrated. There was a question, even is he the most overrated player? of all time he was ranked on that top 100 list of nhl players which obviously a lot of people kind of scoffed at considering i think malkin wasn't on the list uh but i mean jonathan Taves. i am not saying that i think he's top 100 player of all time i also don't think he's the most underrated of all time i brought up alexei kovalev actually as my pick that i was able to come up with anyway you said you said underrated but i think you meant overrated 
Right, yeah. People were wondering if Taves is like overrated. Maybe he is, but I also feel like you have to give him kind of a break. Like his line mates in Chicago aren't the all-star line mates from the past, right? Like he's carrying guys like Panic and Schmaltz and oh, Hartman. I don't know whoever gets there. Like Patrick Kane gets Panarin and Anisimov usually. And then, you know, even Marion Hosa wasn't playing with Taves, which probably just means that Hosa isn't the Hosa that he used to be, or maybe they wanted to split up the offense. And it's just to say, I think people should be a little bit easier on Jonathan Taves. He had that amazing run during the regular season where he was getting so many points and elevating all of these guys like Panic and Schmaltz who were kind of doing nothing for a long stretch before that. He's an easy target. A lot of, especially Chicago fans, love him and think he's, you know, a god for them. And he did make that top 100 list. And a lot of like old school hockey writers like him. They think he's a really intense, responsible, qualified Canadian, good old Winnipeg boy. But I think he might be overblown in terms of his offensive capabilities. He's a really good player at this point in his career, though. Like you say, he's carrying around those other guys. Sure. So is Anze Kopitar, though, often you playing with not great linemates. That was a really weird sentence construction. But I think that's why Taves is such a, a heated debate, because there's one school of hockey that just loves him way more than the other school thinks they should. Like, there's no even-handedness when talking about Jonathan Taves. Yeah, I think that the people who are, like, more into the data get really annoyed when people say, oh, Taves won so many cups, so that's all you need to know. And But I think there's also a reasonable argument to be made that he might be a good player. Also, just maybe not, you know, top 100 of all time. Anyways, this is all hyperbole. Then on Nashville, I just wanted to ask you really quickly. So Johansson, Forsberg, Arvidsson were all, like you said, so amazing in this series. They had 6-5 and 4 points, respectively, in the four games. By the way, James Neal, nowhere to be seen with just one assist. Would love to get your thoughts on how you'd rank Johansson, Forsberg, and Arvidsson at this point if you were drafting for next year. Like, you would think Arvidsson is the clear, like, number three but I don't when we were playing this Yahoo champion of champions thing that they were doing for all the people who won their Yahoo fantasy league. There was a day when I had just enough money left to get either Forsberg or Arvidsson and Arvidsson cost a dollar more. So I went with Forsberg and that was the day that he got a hat trick. So that actually worked out pretty well for me. Not that I'm a champion of champion, but anyway, how, how do you rank those three guys? All clearly studs for next year. Curious to know how high you would draft them and, and in what order. I would go Forsberg first, then Arvidsson, then Ryan Johansson. (gasps) I think Arvidsson was probably higher in the Yahoo thing, like more value because he offers more shots on goal, uh, which is really valuable too. Like depending on your league format, maybe he is more. I, I can't even say it. I don't think he's more valuable than Forsberg, even though he's turned out to be a really great player. I don't know if you remember, Elon, back at the start of the year, we actually had him as somebody who could fill in on the top line and have an impact, although we had no idea it would be to this extent, but I had him on my wish list to play on that top line and to get a real turn. And I'm so glad it happened. Uh, Ryan Johansson, third of that group, but we should also note that he is looking better than he ever has as a Nashville predator. And I, you know, I think that lines chemistry is part of it, but his own game has really picked up as well. I think you're going to be able to draft him later this year, like this upcoming draft, then you will ever be able to again until he hits the latter part of his aging curve so if you're in a keeper league and you've got him this might be a chance to keep him and not let go or you can you know let him back into the pool because he had a season where at times he was really exciting times he wasn't he didn't really seem to find his stride for a bunch of it so maybe you could still get him cheap but I don't think he'll be available as cheap by the time next season is over Okay, and let's say you're in the last round of your pool, picking up, you know, your last player, 
Do you take a chance on James Neal or, or is he is he done? Maybe, maybe. He could still be good for 50 points, 55. And like 60 point ceiling is still there, but it's a longer and longer shot. So that's one thing we've learned from this series is that Nashville can win without having to rely on him for offense. And if they don't have to rely on him for offense, there's not a ton that he offers defensively either. I could see him taking on like a Patrick Marlowish type role. Okay, well, Marlowe did have that four-goal game that screwed me in a matchup at one point last year. So we'll see if James Neal can do that at some point. By the way, breaking news, Austin Matthews just scored. There's, what, like 10 minutes left, 12 minutes left, and the Leafs are now up one nothing over Washington. Man, Brian, do you mind if I just take a break right now and go to a nearby bar to enjoy the atmosphere for a bit? Then I'll come back and we'll finish the show. Yes, I would mind that. Everyone would mind that. What would we talk about? Okay, yeah, you'd be fine. But okay, well, I want to talk about the Pittsburgh Penguins. Can I do that now? Sure. Okay, so they won the series. I feel bad for Columbus. Like, what can you say? I don't want to rant about the playoff format, except to say it's a stupid playoff format, and Columbus shouldn't have had to play Pittsburgh in the first round when they were, like, the third best in their conference. Anywho, some very impressive playoff performances for the Penguins. Malkin, two goals, nine assists for 11 points in the five games. That's over two points a game. Kessel had eight points in those five games. Crosby was seven. Gensel was six points in five games. Honorable mention, I'm going to say Brian Rust had four goals in five games. And then, of course, on the other side, some disappointing Penguins. Hornfist, only three points in the five games, which is okay. Nothing special. And Connor Sheary, only two assists in those games. And actually, Connor Sheary was on the Crosby and Gensel line for most of the series. But actually, in the last game, Hornfist ended up bumping him. So it'll be interesting to see, Brian. I have a big question. Mark in the chat room asked this, but I already had this plan, Mark. So you don't get credit for this one. At this point, I, I feel like at the end of the season, we all would have said, or most people would have said for next year, take Shiri over Gensel if you're ranking Penguins for next year. Maybe at this point that has to change. Also, Gensel has been getting a shot on the top power play. He's been bumping Hornquist from his spot a little bit. Also, Hornquist has been bumping him, so they've been back and forth. But definitely Gensel, as opposed to Connor Shiri, he's getting top power play time. He's just looking so good. Like I said, six points in five games. Like, there's no point talking about Crosby and Kessel like they're great and Steve Laidlaw already commented on Hornfist last week and how he thinks he might get traded so let's not get into him again I really want to talk about Fleury who you know is a whole other story and then Malkin, Gensel and Shiri. so as far as Malkin goes we're gonna have to debate going to next year like we always do when do you draft Evgeny freaking Malkin he ended the season with 72 points in 62 games which is unreal he's actually been over a point per game every single season of his career except for once which is, which is like we're in an era where this doesn't happen very often, yet Malkin's on it every year except for 2010-2011. He had 37 points in 43 games, just like a horrible season for him. But aside from that, he's always getting over a point per game, but his gameplay numbers, like here are his games played over the last few seasons, 62, 57, 69, 60. Like he can't even get 70 games out of this guy. This year he missed the whole fantasy playoffs for most people after blocking that shot. In our patron rankings, he landed 11th. Is that too high? or too low, or just right. I just I have no idea when to draft this guy. Well, keep in mind that Malkin is the seventh ranked forward in those patient rankings with two defensemen and a goalie ahead of him. But yeah, I think that's just about right. There are enough other great options that you don't need to take the risk on Malkin right away. Like there are enough other guys that you can hope for a point per game from. But if you can get Malkin as you're approaching 10th pick or beyond, it really is hard to pass him up. Like even if you take him as a trade ship because you know he's going to be amazing when he's healthy and then maybe you can find an owner in a desperate situation who's willing to take on that risk and pay you more for it than it costs you to draft Malkin 
So I wouldn't hesitate to take him there, either taking the risk personally or hoping to sell high and offload that risk onto someone else for more pieces later in the season. For reference, Jamie Benn, Tyler Sagan, Brad Marchand, uh, Nick Baxter, and Steven Stamkos are the next wave of forwards to be picked, it appears, in those rankings, compared to McDavid, Crosby, Kane, Kucherov, and Ovechkin, who have already been picked. Oh, sorry, and Tarasenko and Matthews. Uh, So which group do I think he fits best with? I think that latter group of top forwards. Uh, So that's why I am comfortable picking him with that group within the top 10 forwards 100%. Yeah, it's like the people who had him this year aren't going to want to draft him because he wasn't around in the fancy playoffs. The people who picked him in their playoff pools this year are probably loving him and are going to try to get him next year in the regular season pools. Okay, so on to this Gensel-Sherry question. Both were on the Crosby line, like I said, for most of the series, and Sherry was bumped. I've already said all of this. Still early at this point to me. Gensel is just looking so good. But we were saying that before about Shiri. Like, overall on the season, Shiri had 53 points in 61 games, which is a 71-point pace. That's, like, well above any expectation we could have had for Connor Shiri. Gensel, though, he had 33 points in 40 games on the season, but he ended the year with 26 points in his last 28 games, almost a point per game. And then, like I said, he's carried it into the playoffs. Are these, like, just both 70-point guys next year? Like, can we just bank on 70 points from Gensel and Shiri? Or do you think one is higher or one is lower? And who would you like over the other one? Can we just bank on 70 points from two young guys who have done it in, like, parts of a season each? Uh, No, we can't just bank on that. That would be foolish. It's tough to project these two, though, because, like, you want to think that they can do it and extrapolate whatever they manage. And... You know, if they play with Sidney Crosby at even strength next season, they could easily, like, if you're going to hit 70 points out of the blue, that's likely the place to do it. I think you can use 60 points as a starting point for them. The lack of power play time potentially hurts them both. Yeah, but Gensel uh, might be yeah. on the power play. If, like, in the playoffs, Horn yeah. has already been bumped, and like Steve Laidlaw said, Hornfist might not even be on the team next year. There's a spot for Jake Gensel. Yeah, yeah, potentially. Potentially. So can we bank on it? No. Like we still need to see some movement happen. And also in the regular season, they had some high on ice shooting percentages going for them and their IPPs were closer to those of elite players than I'm ready to quite give them credit for at this point. But again, they're in a great position. They look incredibly talented. So I'm I'm happy to at least give them a 60 floor. 70 would be really nice, but I just... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not ready. Are you ready to go there? I don't know. But okay. I I would say with Gensel, I could see it happening if he's going to get on that power play. So I'm going to hedge a little bit. Okay. Uh, Okay. Now here's the really between. Oh, sorry. I was was just going to finish. Like if it's between the two of them, I'll go Gensel over Shiri. Just looking at how they've been used in the playoffs. Uh, Gensel's averaging almost two minutes more per ice time. And some of that is thanks to that extra power play deployment. And like he's made the most use of that extra time too, has like a proportionate amount of extra shots and more than a proportionate amount of extra points. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so Brian, let's make it really tough. We talked about those Nashville guys before. Arvidsson. Arvidsson. So you take Arvidsson over both Shiri or Gensel? I would take him over Shiri. I think I'll take him over Gensel for those huge shots on goal totals that I'll reference every time we talk about Arvidsson. Okay, and then you said Johansson, the last of the Nashville guys. Would you take Johansson over those guys? I don't know. It's tough. I feel like this is a good group. I think these are players that are maybe in the same tier, believe it or not. And it'll be really fun to see those three Nashville guys and then Shiri and Gensel. I think in a lot of leagues, they'll all be drafted in a different order. I know it's hard not to want to take. Oh, they're all so exciting. 
Yeah, it's going to be a really fun year to draft. A lot of new names entering top billing areas. Well, the patrons will at least be able, we'll be able to see who the patrons rank first of those five guys. So that'll be fun. I'll bet you Gensel's going to be ranked first just because there's a lot of crazy Gensel love on the Facebook group right now. Speaking of whom, Elon, the patrons, if we could just do a quick interlude, this is our like off season. And during our off season, you can get all the patron perks that we normally offer for $5 a month. You can get them for $1 a month, including access to our patron cast that is coming up on Wednesday. So you'll get access to the Facebook group, which is a little quieter now than it is during the regular season. But there's still a lot of, we have our patron rankings going on. You can still ask us questions and we'll be around frequently to answer them. And you've got the the brilliant minds of the rest of the patron community. It's a fun place to be. It's practically nothing. And you're also supporting the show. Like if you're like, oh, the perks aren't worth it. How about this podcast that you're listening to? It's like a quarter per show to pay us a buck a month and get those patron perks. So come in. It's like a free almost preview. Come see what we're all about and our patron perks and have uh, have fun with us this summer. Yeah, why not? Well, so if I've been saying that $5 a month buys one of us a beer, I guess before tax at a bar, uh, what does $1 a month give us? Wait, you can't even get anything. No, I don't. Uh... It's basically we're asking you to make the hassle of like putting in your your information so that we could have you on board and get you into the couple and all the fun stuff for next year. Okay, let's get back to things. Actually, I still want to ask you a couple things about Pittsburgh. First of all, Brian wait, Rust. Wait, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. Okay. Oh, yes. Right. So Brian Rust, he, like I said, I wanted to give him honorable mention for a great performance in the series. And he's been playing on a line with Malkin and Kessel. So if Hornquist is going to be gone, obviously this is all speculation, but it seems like Brian Rust is someone who could be given a decent role next season. He's 24 years old. He had 28 points in 57 games this season, which is not great, but it's not nothing. It's like just around half point per game. Any chance he could be fantasy relevant next year? Like maybe would you draft him around the same time that you'd be considering drafting James Neal? Or is he like for sure leave him not drafted and if someone else takes him, they're kind of crazy. And then maybe just star him as a potential watchlist guy in case he gets hot or is on a good line. Yeah, I think that's about it. He's not someone that'll make it on my draft list. I might even prefer someone like Benino instead if we're going to go for deeper cuts on the Penguins. So yeah, no one I'm getting too excited about. Put him down for me. I don't know. There's no one to actually put these things down, but he's my early call for like a surprising guy that's not going to get drafted and then will end up being somewhat fantasy relevant, especially if he could get online with Malkin. You know, that could be pretty good. And I, I've heard his name a lot. Like every time I've seen him sort of starting to do something, he gets injured. And then when he comes back, he's not in a good line. So I don't know. He, he interests me. And then, of course, we've got Marc-Andre Fleury. Crazy, right? This story is insane. Like right before the first game, Matt Murray injured himself in warmups. Then he hasn't played since. And Fleury, who a lot of people thought would get traded at the trade deadline. Obviously, Pittsburgh looks brilliant now for holding on to him for insurance. He's been great. He put up a 933 save percentage in the first round. Murray, meanwhile, hasn't resumed skating. I don't even know if he'll be back for the playoffs. And even if he was healthy, would the Penguins put him in at this point or just keep riding Marc-Andre Fleury, who's been great? But at the same time, we have this whole Vegas thing where the Penguins are going to have to leave one of these guys unprotected. There's no way they leave Matt Murray unprotected, even if Fleury leads them to another Stanley Cup, right? Which means potentially Vegas is starting... Can we just call it right now? Is it like almost for sure that Vegas' starting goalie next season is going to be Marc-Andre Fleury? I'll be honest. If I am the Las Vegas general manager, I'm not sure... If it's such an easy decision for me. I mean, if you want to go for someone who you know is capable and experienced and will immediately add legitimacy to your team, then okay. But maybe I'd rather find a younger goalie 
that can grow with my team and maybe be a little cheaper. I feel like Florian Vegas would be like Mike Dunham being with Expansion Nashville. And they also had Thomas Vokun, who was able to challenge for the job. So uh, I don't know exactly what that comparison, or I guess what I'm trying to say is they can go for the experienced guy, but I don't think it's their long-term future. They can grab him so that they have someone fans maybe can identify right away. He's a star goalie. I feel like it would be more of a marketing short-term decision than a real smart competitive decision. Right. I might look at you're right. not giving him enough credit. He's he's got a 9.33 save. He's Mark Andre Fleury. He's really good. You going into the season, you were saying he's got, that he's he's got, got a 9.33 save percentage in how many playoff games? I know, but I'm just saying, going into the year, you were talking about yeah. him as like he's the guy you wanted more than Matt Murray. He's clearly right. a great NHL goalie, and he. I'm just saying, like I don't know. I feel like he's for sure going to get taken by them. I don't think. I think it would be silly. It would be like so easy to nitpick and be like, oh, you should get a younger guy. They got to sell tickets for their first season. What about just saying we got Stanley Cup champion Mark Andre Fleury as our starting goalie? It'd be amazing. But but the fact that you're even going to that level of argument means that there is much to be desired in his game and what you can rely. Like he's a guy who has this strong points has his weak moments and he's someone I've gone to bat for a lot when people think he's been carried by his team he's had a lot of spells where he's been an above average NHL goalie he's had really huge playoff performances is that what I think Vegas should go after though like an older goalie who might be expensive and can have runs of inconsistency and those runs grow as he gets older I'm not sure you've got Ranta Grubauer who might be available through the expansion draft itself. And then those free agent options like Scott Darling, Ben Bishop, Brian Elliott, they're all out there as other potential options too. Okay. I think why not take Flurry and then one of those young guys and then you got the best of both worlds. Yeah, that, that would be the dunham Vokun move. And I can back that. He's definitely made a case to get a look as number one or number one A next year. And I wonder, you know, maybe if Vegas doesn't even get a chance to get him, maybe another team makes a move for him before he gets exposed. Yeah, so hey, Brian, uh, another question. Let's say you are running the Pittsburgh Penguins, and let's say you get the news Matt Murray is healthy. He's ready to start the next series against either Washington or Toronto. Do you put Murray in for game one? That's not going to happen. I'm just curious if you would, since it seems like you're not so confident in Marc-Andre Fleury. I'm confident in what I've seen from Marc-Andre Fleury. I think I would go back to Matt Murray, though. He was the better goalie all season long. He was the better goalie last year. Yeah, I'd go with Matt Murray. You wouldn't? I don't know. Maybe I'll get made fun of on the patron group for saying an old school thing like this, but I'd ride the hot hand. I'd keep going with no, Fleury. No, that's very reasonable. Marc-Andre Fleury like, looks like he's in the zone. He looks happy. He looks comfortable. Like There's a lot of things to like about him being able to step back in and win a playoff series and be someone who means this much to their team again. I think he's relishing it. I think he's taking advantage of it. But one slip up, and then I think there's no question you look to Murray. I don't know. I I don't even think it's a conversation. We can have that conversation if it happens. Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's move on to the next series. Oh, by the way, Washington scored. It's 1-1. Thanks for keeping all our future listeners updated (laughs) on the happenings of the past. It's going to be another overtime game. This whole series determined in overtime. So so wild. Okay, Uh, let's talk about the Rangers and the Canadians. So the Rangers won. Lundqvist had a great series versus Montreal. He outplayed Carey Price. And like, I mean, they both were really good, but Lundqvist was 947 good, while Price was only 933 save percentage good. So a whole other tier. I'd love to, I know you probably have thoughts on the series overall. I gotta ask you right now though, is Carey Price your number two guy next year after Holtby? I feel like that's like a given that he's either a number one or number two goalie when you're drafting for fantasy next year. But to me, like Montreal, like, are they strong enough to justify drafting their goalie? 
And it's not as if he was like the best in save percentage by a lot. Like, okay, Price this season overall was tied for fifth in wins behind uh, Holtby, Talbot, Bobrovsky, Dubnik, and then he was tied with Tuka Rask. And also Bobrovsky, Craig Anderson, Holtby, Gibson, Dubnik, and Matt Murray all had higher save percentages than Carey Price. So it's not as if he's like the first. I'm not saying he's bad. He totally maybe even is the odds-on favorite for next year to go in and have the highest save percentage of the goalies who play like a reasonable number of games. But also, I don't know, like he was just ranked number 12th in our patron rankings, the second goalie behind Holtby. To me, I feel like there's no way I take Price that high in my draft. I would rather take someone like, say, Eichel or whatever, like, you know, Tyler Sagan at that spot, and then wait a round or two and get a Matt Murray or a Bobrovsky or a Talbot. They'll probably be close to as good, could even be better, probably will get similar number of wins. Maybe even Henrik Lundqvist, who, you know, has been very inconsistent throughout the season, but was great in this playoff series. Like, I feel like this just really has exposed. I know it's only a short series or whatever, but to me, I feel like Montreal, I don't know. They're not like an elite team. They're good and they rely on Carey Price, but it seemed like they had a lot of trouble scoring goals. I watched some of the games and aside from Radulov, not much was going on with that offense. This has been the situation for a long time. It's just that Carey Price playing completely, totally elite has been able to distract people and the moment that he stopped playing so out of his mind or not out of his mind because that's just how good he is but the moment he stopped playing to his top 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 ability it exposed the rest of the team is yeah not being great having made some weird decisions and first let's go back to Lungvist. I'm personally surprised that Lungvist was able to outplay Price even, you know, given Price was not at his best during the whole series. But Lungfist is looking like the Hank of old. My concern for the Rangers going forward is that he needs to be able to keep that up. And we haven't seen him keep that up for a long time in the last two years, like over any stretch. So I'm very interested to find out if he's able to do that because they're going to need to rely on him to advance with their very thin and cobbled together defense core, even though it's not really cobbled together, like they meant to put this defense core together, which is even more curious. Okay, but focusing back on Montreal and what Carey Price could mean for you, like you have to hope their GM gets a clue at this point. Like Marc Bergeron went out and he added gritty role players like Steve Ott and Dwight King, which seemed so weird then. And it, of course, seems weird now because it didn't pay off. Um, They need offense very badly. Carey Price can't score goals and you can't blame him if he doesn't stand on his head when the rest of the team doesn't seem up to doing even just the most basic level of their job. My biggest question mark for Montreal's offense going into next year is not whether Radulov is back or not, is actually over Alex Galchenyuk, which is so frustrating because we wondered about what he can do for like three years now saying, oh, he just needs to get in a better situation. Oh, look, he's getting deployed really well. Oh, but now he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. We had Michelle Therrien who wouldn't play him at center or give him enough opportunities. Then Therrien was fired. Julian came in and then the situation actually got worse for Galchenyuk. He was playing on the fourth line at times this series. She's a super talented player, but what's the guy doing to keep losing the trust of his coaches? And can he remedy this problem well enough to get himself back into a space where we can expect 60 or more points from him in a year? He's a restricted free agent this offseason. Should be one of the more interesting cases of restricted free agency. He just finished a two-year contract, just under $3 per year. And I could see him asking double that. I imagine what the Habs are willing to invest in him might 
offer us a clue as to how we can expect him to be deployed next year. And then, of course, there's Radulov. We don't know where he'll end up. Markov is an unrestricted free agent. I wonder if he'll take a discount to stay with Montreal. And Brian Flynn is another UFA. Okay, all really good points, Brian. I am, though, curious to get the answer to the question I asked at the start there. Do you think Carey Price <laughs> yeah. is the second most valuable goalie in fantasy? Yes, I do. I know you're coming from a very personal place where you drafted him early on in a panic moment and you blame your whole season on that moment <laughs> when you drafted him. Yeah. You think an offensive player could have done a lot more for you, but I still think he's a he's a really bad... Like, it's a different discussion over if you should draft him ahead of like an Austin Matthews or Jack Eichel. That's another conversation, but I would say he is only behind Braden Holtby. So first of all, Brian, I wasn't even thinking about my team. I was asking because I think it's an interesting question for the listeners. But also, I think there's a strong, strong argument to be made that like, why wouldn't you want to have like a a Matt Murray next year who's going to almost for sure get you more wins and have, I think like he had a higher save percentage pretty much tied, you know, slightly, slightly higher save percentage than Carey Price this year. Like, maybe he'll be a slightly lower next year, but all those wins, I don't know. Like, I just think, like, I don't think it's so cut and dry as people think. Like, I think that a top fantasy goalie needs to give you great numbers, with which Price will give you, but not necessarily the greatest in terms of, like, better than everyone else. And also, you got to get a lot of wins, and I don't see that coming from Carey Price. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's been the knock on him for the last few years, but his level of play has been enough to to erase that concern and be like, okay, well, he will win. He will take a mediocre Montreal team and pull wins out of them while giving you numbers that no other goalie in the league can give you. Sure. Okay. But I'm not asking. Okay. Anyways, it's, it's a debate that can't be answered. We'll do a whole Schmore Goalies episode later on. I'm not talking about though, who's like the best goalie in the league. Actually, I'm talking about value for fantasy and this season, clearly Bobrovsky and and Holby, of course, but like and and you know even a few other guys maybe throw Craig Anderson in there. I don't know. Like a lot of Talbot. Like a lot of guys made arguments for maybe being more valuable than Price this year. Uh, okay, another series. What what series do you want to talk about next, Brian? I I got some points about some of the other series, but I know we probably need to wrap up pretty soon. Okay, how about let's talk about Anaheim and Calgary and just how I thought Calgary would put up more of a fight than they did although you can't necessarily blame their forwards like Sean Monahan had a fantastic series it all came down to goaltending Brian Elliott just never looked settled he led in some bad goals at bad times especially in the final game on his way to posting a league low 880 playoff save percentage Sergei Bobrovsky by the way only an 882 save percentage in the playoffs anyway this means Calgary could very well be searching for a goalie again this offseason so that's a situation to watch develop maybe a potential landing spot for Marc-Andre Fleury or Scott Darling. And then you look at their unrestricted free agents. They have Weidman and Versteeg becoming UFAs with Bennett and Furland as the notable RFAs. Chris Versteeg, imagine, was sitting, was it in Switzerland somewhere at the start of the year and finally was able to make his way back into the NHL. He did deserve to be in the NHL. And that is a he did deserve to be in the NHL this year. And he certainly deserves to stick around. Any team would be smart to add him as a solid top six player, maybe even a team looking for a more stable and rounded top nine, he could really help them. Right, yeah, I don't know if I have much to say about Calgary. I think it'll be really interesting, obviously, to follow what they do with their goaltending. Both of their goalies are unrestricted free agents this summer, so they'll have two fresh goalies maybe next year, and you've mentioned a lot earlier in the show of guys who might be available. Maybe Scott Darling starting goalie for the Calgary Flames next year. It could happen, right? You know, Or they could re-sign Brian Elliott, 
who was bad and then good. You know, it's kind of like a Devin Dubnik type story, except maybe reverse, maybe a Jake Allen type story. I don't even know at this point. But like Allen had good stretches this year, kind of blew it in those last couple of games against Anaheim. So I have a feeling that he's not going to be coming back to Calgary. It'll be interesting to see also just for him where he goes. Brian on Anaheim, though, they were great. We already talked about Shea Theodore, and we'll have to follow him throughout the rest of the playoffs and then also into next season. Keep an eye on Shea Theodore, especially like in training camp. If he's getting those spots on the top power play, he's a guy I would really expect to break out next year if he could get that role. And Brian, hey, got to mention Ricard Raquel. We got to have our weekly Ricard Raquel debate. He continued his dream season into the playoffs. Five points in the four games against Calgary. Same number of points as Theodore and Getzlaff. I know Raquel's shooting percentage indicates that his 33 goals in 71 games this season were unsustainable. So I want to know, you know, no debate, like no baggage. How many goals and points are you pegging him for at this point for next year? Like we already were ranking Arvidsson, Johansson, and Forsberg. And then I threw Shiri and Gensel. And we were saying they're all maybe in the same group. Is Ricard Raquel in that group? Or is he for sure a lot lower? Like I could see him getting 30 goals and 60 points, which probably would actually put him lower than that group. But maybe is that even too high? Definitely lower than those guys. I was trying to look for guys last year, the season before this current one, who similarly overperformed their expected shooting percentage. And I'm wondering if Tyler Toffoli could be the right ballpark to have him in. Like both are solid scorers. I don't doubt the talent of either, but both had some favorable percentages during some really productive seasons. So maybe that's sort of a place, like maybe we could still hope for a 55, 60 point year from Raquel, but I'm not about to draft him as a 60 plus point guy. Like it sounds, you might want to. I mean, if uh, 60 point guys are gone and we're getting into below 60 guys and Raquel is still around, I think I'm jumping on him. I just, I don't know. I love him. I feel like he's going to play with Getzlaff. Like, let's see how he does for the rest of the playoffs. But he's just been so great. <laughs> you know, you always got to love those guys who you pick up as a free agent early in the year and then they help carry you. I think I dropped him, though, at a dumb time with a couple. Of, or no, I traded him. Anyways, okay. Uh, so Washington, like I said, and Toronto are in overtime right now. So we'll see if by the time we finish this podcast, that series is over or if the Leafs can push it to a game seven. I want to give a kudos right now to Matthew, who is here in our chat and also was part of our couple winners draft last episode he drafted justin williams saying i'll take mr clutch mr playoffs smart pick no one had him on their radars but he's been so good five points in five games so far did he get in on washington's goal today no it was johansson from eller and orpic of course it's like random guys like that but uh, yeah justin williams has been so good brian is it like just a coincidence that williams has been doing well in the playoffs and in general seems to do better in the playoffs than in the regular season? Or like, is there such a thing as being better at putting up points in the playoffs versus regular season? I'm just curious, like, how is Justin Williams so much better in the playoffs? I know it's just a small sample size, but like, is there something here? If clutch is a real thing, it has not yet been adequately quantified. I believe it could be a thing. I think back to our interview with Stefan Wolesho earlier this year and think that, you know, maybe there's some cohesion or resilience type trait at play here. And hey, maybe Williams is also good at identifying and reading how the game changes when the stakes are high or in game seven moments and is successful when he figures out a way to try and exploit those subtle differences that happen in those sorts of situations. Uh, But let's also remember that he's been on good teams whenever this happens. So there's plenty of help around him as well. He does always happen to be the one who does it. And he has another chance right now to help Washington advance as the Caps 
head to overtime with the Leafs. If he scores to send the Caps to round two tonight, then I will believe that he is a magic man. No, I, that, that won't be enough to convince me, but there, there certainly seems to be something to it. Eventually, like once the myth is built up enough, I feel like it could be even a self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh, I see what you mean. Like maybe they're going to try to pass it to Williams because they know he has the hot hand, quote unquote, like in overtime in the playoffs. I mean, he's on a good line. He's playing with Kuznetsov and Johansson. I guess that's line two. And then Oshie, Ovechkin and Backstrom. And Washington like has all these talented players. That would be so crazy if uh, they lost to the Leafs. But we'll see. By the way, Brian, speaking of that pool we did, if people want an update, you're winning right now. Look at you. You went big on Pittsburgh and Nashville, and they are carrying you. You have 28 points to lead the way with uh, Crosby, Gensel, Shiri, Johansson, Forsberg, and then Mikhail Granlund is your only bad pick. He's eliminated. Guess who's in second place, though? It's me! It's me! Yeah. I'm tw- I'm tied. Six, you you like lead. You're set. You have the second most games played. I have the fewest games played. I, okay. You have six more games played than I do, Calm and down. three fewer points. Still, you have three quarters of a point per game. I have a full point per game. This isn't like because you picked better and you have more guys playing. You're just okay. series. You, they they went longer than right. I did. Nashville and Pittsburgh just cleaned up so fast. You're winning. I said you're winning. Like, why do you have to? <laughs> yeah, but you're not in? even close. You're trying to paint yourself as a close second. I'm going to eat these words, aren't I? I mean, okay. We'll see what happens in the next round. Obviously, if Pittsburgh and Nashville move forward, I think you've got this thing in the bag. I'm going to be. I lost two teams already, so I've lost two players. I've lost Pasternak and Radulov, but I've still got two St. Louis guys in Schwartz and Tarasenko, and I have McDavid and Lucic on Edmonton. So I think you clearly have the advantage because you have an extra player and you have like I think stronger players overall. But you never know in the playoffs. And also we have our couple winners who a, a bunch of them still have a chance. So Dave is actually tied with me for a second. He's riding. I'm just opening up here. I don't know if this is interesting podcasting, but if, if people listened to it last week, they might be interested in hearing the update this week. So Dave has lost Keith and Panic, but he has Backstrom, Malkin, Corey Perry, and Shattenkirk. So he's going to lose one of Backstrom or Malkin next series, or maybe even earlier for Backstrom and Shattenkirk. So I think I could maybe compete with him. It's, it's just so up in the air right now since we don't know what's going to happen. Seriously. And then Matthew, like I said, the guy who has Justin Williams is next in fourth. Brian, I promise I won't go through the whole rankings. But I just want to say Matthew's having a huge day today, three points. So it's going to be very exciting. It's it, I think anyone could win this right now, except for maybe Jeff and Cam at the bottom. They have a long road to climb. Everyone else, it's going to depend a lot on what happens in the second round. Well, Jeff has lost four out of six players, and his last two are capitals and not, like, top-end capitals either. Yeah, tough for him. And Cam, well, he's got a few. Anyway, we can you can check all this out yourself. Keepingcarlson.com slash champ pool. And Elon, you are actually relying on two Oilers to carry you forward. So how about we talk about them? Actually, before we talk about them, let's quickly touch on just the Ottawa Senators who are finally reappearing in the playoffs. We had Bobby Ryan and Derek Broussard go missing all season long, and they seem like they're involved in every goal. Broussard has eight points in six games, which makes a lot of people ready to say, or at least in the Ottawa media, what a great trade this was. Even though Zabanejad is still doing well, he has four points in six games. That's half as many but in a smaller role. So you have to keep that in mind. They'll be going head-to-head next round. And then the other name that scored the game-winning goal in overtime, Clark MacArthur, who was not even playing until, like, what was it, the second last game of the season, suddenly showed up in the lineup, scored a big goal earlier in the series, got the game-winning goal, the series-winning goal. Now, of these three, Elon, who do you prefer next year? I think Derek Broussard 
is the obvious choice. Yeah, I'll take the obvious choice. First of all, Clark MacArthur, it's fantastic. It's like such a great story. And you know, scoring the series winning overtime goal, amazing. But I mean, come on. I, he has like two points in the series overall. I guess like it, there is a chance he could land in the top six. And I know you loved him a couple seasons ago. Yeah. You definitely like anyone who's like now so into MacArthur because of his great story. You could be like, oh, no, I liked him before. It was cool to like him. <laughs> well, he had a great season with tourists, right? Before really getting knocked around and having that severely hamper his game and his ability to actually be in the lineup. So I still like him from then when, you know, he I, I had him as a 55-ish point player then. I don't think he can get quite there now, but I think he's still probably good for 50. I don't know if that's draft worthy, though. I think if I'm the Sens, I sell high on Bobby Ryan if I can over the summer. I don't know about his like contract status or free agent status, but like he was so not a factor for most of the season, at least in terms of fantasy. And now he's having this, these great playoffs. So maybe that's a good opportunity to get some value out of him who's been really disappointing. Derek Broussard. I mean, that's what you traded him for. It's going to be really fun. Sens versus Rangers. Brian, have you put it together yet? I'm sure you already know this. I'm just realizing this now. Zabanajad versus Broussard. I wow. Said I said this like a minute ago, so I've definitely put it together. Oh, it's, nice that, it's nice that you've joined me in putting it together, though. Yeah, that's exciting. Okay, well, I was still looking at the rankings for our draft here. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, San Jose Edmonton. Let's close out the show. Okay, well, before I say that, I, I just wanted to give a quick update. One thing I forgot to mention, we did actually amend the stakes for this draft. And what we decided <laughs> is that the last place team is going to have to write a song about how they suck and how the first place team is amazing to be performed on a future episode of Keeping Carlson. How about that? So it is actually a big deal that we mentioned Jeff and Cam. They are looking like they're going to be competing for that honor to sing about probably Brian or I. Or maybe Dave or Matthew. Okay. So anyways, okay, yes, you wanted to talk about this uh, series with San Jose and Edmonton. So obviously it's very exciting for Edmonton, just like in Ottawa. These two Canadian teams, maybe Toronto, we'll see, who haven't made it far in the playoffs in a long time. I think it's since 2013 that Ottawa's made it to the second round. And I don't even know. Edmonton, I guess, had that year where they made it to the cup finals and lost in the early 2000s, was it? 2007. Okay, so yeah, it's been a long time. Uh, great job for Edmonton. I don't know if I have too much to say about them. Like, uh, let's see how they do next round. It'll be a fun series against Anaheim. I want to mainly say, at least for me, like I'm kind of disappointed in Joe Pavelski. Like he had four points in six games. That doesn't look so bad. But three of those points came in the seven nothing game four win. So that was just a crazy game where San Jose just blew them out out of nowhere. Aside from that, they couldn't do much in the series. But aside from that, Joe Pavelski, he only had one assist in the six games played. So also Pavelski had kind of a disappointing season, only 68 points after 78 points the year before. Are we starting to see a downturn in the career for Joe Pavelski? Like maybe going into next year, should we expect closer to 70 than 80 points? I feel like as I ask that, it seems so obvious. You're obviously going to say closer to 70 than 80. Should I even like be setting my sights lower than 70? Maybe closer to 65, closer to 60. I mean, he's 32 years old. I know that's uh, on the bad side of the aging curve, as you always say. Yeah, well, it's like pretty far along the aging curve. The aging curve starts declining for forwards around 27, 28 years old. So by the time you're at 32, you are definitely in decline. And you can't rely on Joe Pavelski to do the things he's done before. And I wonder what the Sharks team is going to look like. I hinted at this earlier in the episode. They are the team. I think their window is officially closed. It's very sad that this team was never able to win a Stanley Cup. And maybe it's too early to eulogize them. Maybe they have another go at it next year. 
I'm just not sure I see it. And I would put them in the same class as those Vancouver Canucks in the early 2000s and the Ottawa Senators in like the early to mid aughts and hopefully not the Washington Capitals for their sake as some of the best teams we've seen in the last 20 years who aren't going to get their names on a Stanley Cup. I don't think there's another heroic year to squeeze out of Joe Thornton. There certainly is not one to get out of Patrick Marlowe. And yeah, even Pavelski is slowing down now. And then you say, well, the future's still bright. They have Logan Couture. He's already 28 years old. They grow up so fast. So look, with Marlowe <laughs> and Thornton, you have them both as unrestricted free agents. And I know it sounds crazy and maybe even blasphemous, but I wonder if this is an ideal time to let them walk and officially begin a rebuild in San Jose. Right now, the Sharks actually have no second and no third round pick in either of the next two drafts. They have two first rounders in the next two years, and then they have nothing else before the fourth round. And hey, even this year, they don't even have a fourth rounder. So maybe if they trade the rights to Thornton and Marlowe, that can help them recoup some of those picks and start getting things back on track. And I know this might sound truly insane, but Brent Burns has an eight-year contract worth $8 million a year that he signed this past November that begins July 1st. So you're officially looking at diminishing returns for the 32-year-old in not just his on-ice play, but his value as an asset beginning July 1st and also as someone who other teams are going to want to take on his contract. Now, Brent Burns also has a no-trade clause where he can choose three teams that he gives permission to be traded to. So maybe it's not that easy to just try and find a buyer for him. But I wonder how long he's interested in sticking around for a rebuild. Again, he'll be turning 33 at some point next season. And like even, I'm sorry, Sharks fans, if you're listening, but even looking at what else might be coming down the pipe for the Sharks, aside from no draft picks, their longest signed forward right now is Michael Bodker at $4 million per year for four more years. Oh, and boy. he did not have the year that they were expecting him to have. They shouldn't have expected him to have it. I think it's time for Doug Wilson to head off. I don't know that he should GM this team into the future. He sold a lot, was never able to build a cup champion. And now they're in a really weird place where they have the core, the heart of their franchise is going to be too old to win them a cup. And I think it's time to start turning things back around. It reminds me a lot, Elon, of how the Sens in 2007 got to the Stanley Cup final after they had peaked. And then the next year, it was weird because, well, like they should be starting to rebuild, but they just made the cup final. So it didn't feel like they should. I feel like that's where the Sharks are after having made the cup final last year and being in this situation now. Wow. That uh, in the chat room here, we're just saying, ouch, as a comment. Yeah. Sorry, uh, Sharks fans. I guess you guys are just hoping Brian's wrong. But everything you're saying about not having draft picks, all their players being old, all these contracts. Oh my goodness, maybe if I could try to translate or summarize all of what you're saying into one uh, point here, I feel like Martin Jones owners in Keeper League sell, 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 right? You might be having a starting goalie on a not great team in a year or so. Yeah, and he was not even that great this year. I think he cost a lot of people some important standings points when he continued to be a below average goaltender for most of the year, even though he has that number one job. And I don't know that there's anyone coming around to challenge him. He's still, uh, he's now in a worse situation for next year, in my opinion, than he was in this year. Okay. 
And uh, well, when we're getting mentioned in the chat, like no love for LeBanc. Yeah, we have LeBanc and Meyer, and we've talked about some of these prospects, and we will going into next season. Like, obviously, they do have some prospects, and hopefully, you'll hope they'll be enough to carry them. And, and Logan Couture will still be good enough along with this new, fresh crop of prospects. Maybe something could happen. Brian can't predict the future, but you're definitely painting a bleak picture. You didn't answer my uh, Pavelski question, though. He still hasn't been ranked in our patron <laughs> rankings. Are you saying closer to? 80, 70, or 60 points. If you had to pick which one he's going to be closest to. For context, he had 78 points two seasons ago, 68 points this season. And like I said, pretty much nothing in the playoffs aside from in that one 7 nothing game. I'm going to say a lot of it could depend on whether Joe Thornton sticks around if he re-ups with the Sharks because they have been a tandem for a while. And while they were less productive last year than they usually have been, I think Thornton is probably still better sentiment to have like maybe Pavelski still plays with Logan Couture and that's great maybe in that case he keeps up 65 70 points but uh Elon I'm gonna hedge I'm gonna go I'm gonna go 65 so if you really want me to pick closer to 60 or closer to 70 I'll go closer to 70 but I don't expect more Okay, well, obviously far cry from his 78 points two seasons ago. That's a shame. It's kind of a bummer to end the show on, but uh, I think that's it. Well, we- how about Ilya Kovalchuk? Oh, come on. Okay, yeah. So let's talk about him. Like, rumor is he might get signed. I don't know how much we can speculate on a guy who hasn't yet signed with a team. I'd imagine he wouldn't go to New Jersey if he didn't come back. It is kind of exciting, right? And we've seen uh, Radulov this year, and he had an up and down year. But I don't think you could, just because they're like two people who happen to come from the KHL, I don't know how much in common you could say they have. Uh, Do you have anything to say about Kovalchuk? Yeah, well, the deal with him is that New Jersey owns his rights. And if he doesn't sign with them, he would have to clear waivers and get permission from all 29 other teams to enter the league. The way around that, if he's not going to play for New Jersey, is for him to sign with New Jersey and for them to trade him. So they work at a sign-and-trade deal with every part orchestrated so that he gets back into the league without needing every other team to pass on him and allow him in the league and still get to play on a team that's not New Jersey. He had been a point-per-game player for the last three seasons in the KHL. And we'd actually talked about him as someone who hasn't been in the top 10 in scoring, wasn't even leading his team in scoring. In fact, he was outscored by Artemi Panarin for a couple years with Ska St. Petersburg. But last year was definitely his best year in the KHL. He had 78 points in 60 games, cracked the top 10 in both goals. He finished third in the league in goals, second in the league in points. And I saw a suggestion that he would be a great fit for an elite centerman which would be really nice and obviously ideal, right? Like someone to open a lot of space and set him up because I think he probably still has that wicked shot. I think he'll get a lot of say in where he ends up and hopefully New Jersey will help facilitate it. Someone very interesting to watch who should be available for Pulis unless you're really smart in your keeper league and you somehow managed to retain his rights when he left to the KHL like the Devils did. Is that a thing in fantasy? Can you retain a player's rights? I imagine some leagues have some clause where this can happen. I've never been in one where it happens. If I was, though, like I was one of the people who lost Kovalchuk in my keeper when he went to the KHL, I would definitely be arguing hard to say I have some sort of right to him, even though I would have no basis on which to make that claim. Right, because you got all of your keepers the following year. And by the way, that's the league where you were keeping Carlson. And that's why we named the podcast that, you know, four years ago. And you were in this league and you were keeping Carlson. I was in a league where I was keeping Carlson. You may notice, by the way, for new listeners, that when I introduce the show, I always say, hosted by two guys who at one point owned Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. 
You know, someone on Facebook just recently, actually, I'll call her out, Jade, said that I traded Carlson as if some, like, reason to say that I'm not so into him. And it's like, excuse me, the league folded. It wasn't my fault. Same with Brian's league. I won my league two of the last three years with Eric Carlson as my cornerstone, and then he retired on my team. So I definitely did not choose to not keep Carlson. I did not trade him. I just haven't had the opportunity to get him in another keeper league since. Just wanted to clear that up. I don't know, Elon. You sure have a lot to excuse yourself for with your Carlson cap and your Leafs shirt, and you're not keeping Carlson anymore. I'm not sure what to believe. (laughs) Okay, well, actually, this Leafs game is still going. I want to end the show. I want to walk down the street to St. Louis Bar and Grill and see if I can find a table. Wow, did they pay us for that? I don't know. Okay. So <laughs> might must be popping over there. So let's end the show. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for everyone who joined us in the chat room. This has been a lot of fun. If you enjoyed the show, why not go over to iTunes, give us a five-star review. They help us so much and it costs you so little. And then also, you know, follow us on Twitter. If you're interested, we are still tweeting all throughout the playoffs. And if you have any fantasy advice you'd like to ask us, shoot us a tweet at keeping Carlson. Also, we mentioned before we have our patron program. Where we have a patron cast coming this Wednesday, a show just like this, except where it's prepared by the patrons because we answer patron questions. We've never had a patron cast where we left a question unanswered. So, you know, come on down Wednesday, or even if you can't make it on Wednesday, you can still sign up to be a patron and you'll be able to download the show after the fact. So keepingcarlson.com slash patron for all the information. You can sign up for just a dollar and you get access to all of our perks, like we said earlier in the show. But, you know, by the way, don't get mad at us for bringing it up twice in the show. Did you notice we didn't even have one advertisement for a product? That's because we wanted to give you guys a full show. So anyway, I don't know why. I'm just rambling now because I'm excited and it's late. So let's close things out, Brian. Let's cue the outro music. And why don't you go ahead and read us the credits? All right. This episode of the Keepin' Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our patrons, including our newest ones, David M., Mark Q., who's been very vocal in the chat, Andrew M., Robert W., Keelan, I think, Tristan F., and our first patron named Pontus. It was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Dauber Prospects, Corsica, Hockey Analysis, Hockey Reference, Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, Roto World, and Fantracks. Great job, Brian. By the way, Mark Q, for those of you who don't remember, he's the one who asked if Brian would prefer Dubnik or Jake Allen. Okay, great job, Brian. And we will catch you all with another episode similar to this in a couple of weeks, unless you're a patron, in which case we'll talk to you on Wednesday. And if Mark Hughes to be trusted, this show ends with Justin Williams scoring the series-winning goal in overtime. There must be something to his magic. Anyway, until next episode, two weeks from now, keep on keeping Carl Sun. Quick update, Mark lied. It was Marcus Johansson who scored the winning goal and not Justin Williams. <laughs> he says he let everyone down. We forgive him. Yeah, this is like after the music ends and then I'm going to put in this correction. <laughs>